That's legally why you can't bring a flamethrower to work anymore. Man, that explains why the fireworks factory went up in flames. <laughs> it's a good show, though. <laughs> oh, probably was pretty. A little loud, but pretty. Ooh, pretty. Ooh, Same what happened ah. during midday, too. Anyway. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Thailand Short with Tim and Tony. Why do you have a hat on, though? Because I have to get into character for this one. I have been cagey with you about this past, about this next topic. So, so this is cagey Tim, and yes. I'm... You're, ca- you're cautious, Tony. I'm, I'm nervous, Tony. <laughs> yep, I have been cagey about it. I, you've been like, what's the topic? I'm like, well, we're going to be doing involving cars and stuff. It's going to be a little bit like Top Gear. Which is some... weird for you, because I'm the car, like, you worked at a car dealership. But I'm the car guy. You're more the car guy than I am. Well, the thing is, though, this sort of is a different take, and I hate myself for doing this because I was... I... The, my process when working on this was, it's pretty much the beginning of it. It's like, oh, this is exciting. And then near the end, it's like, oh, God, will it end? Will it end? Will it end? <laughs> it finally ended, and it's pretty much... Pretty much my mental journey while working on this topic very much is kind of reminiscent of how... These racers felt. Anyway. I, I'm, I'm just... I don't know what to expect, because you've been referencing Top Gear, and now you're wearing a I'm, hat from the 1920s England, so... I'm wearing my bowler hat. Well, it is going to be a race, Tony. And this is one that's, I think, our first adventure episode, so it's going to be a long one. I think this will one, be our longest episode. One last question. Shoot. Does it involve speed or power? Jeremy Clarkson. Ah, uh, no, not speed or power, unfortunately. Does but, it involve a Porsche 928, though? No. Okay. In fact, far away from a lot of that. Oh, right. So, everybody, put your driving gloves on, your driving goggles on, and your driving thong on, because we are talking okay, about... Okay, wait, what? <laughs> no. <Mm-mm>, no. <laughs> no. I knew I'd get you with that one. I... I mm, driving mm, gloves? I don't I mean... like this already. Can I go home? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. We're talking about the 1908 New York to Paris race. Why? Because I found it fascinating. It's one of those stories that is so outlandish, it sounds like it's made up, but it's not. I've kind of taken it to a point where I find, I want to find real stories on the occasion that sound outlandish and stupid and crazy. And sure, as God's got sandals, these things exist. I just looked it up, I was like, there's nothing special. But then I realized, oh yeah, they're going from New York to Paris. And for the geographically challenged amongst our viewers, or listeners, or whatever they are, Mm -hmm. there's a big pond in the middle there. But hold on. I I managed to find quite a few sources. One in particular was my main source, which is Race of the Century, the heroic true story of the 1908 New York to Paris auto race by Julie Fenster. This book... It was one of the most in-depth pieces of information that I came across. Same goes for the Smithsonian Magazine had an article about it that I used as well. And then some some tertiary uh, other articles I found on through Wikipedia and what have you. Yeah. This was a race. This was the first race around the world. Yeah. Not the first large-scale city-to-city automobile race, though, because yeah. it should be no surprise, automobile racing been around for a long time. Well, I mean, the first patented vehicle was from Germany in 1888, and this took place in 08. Well, that is actually the patented, like, based on a car. People have been actually making self-powered road vehicles for a while. Like, the first actual race 
was in England August 30th, 1867. Took place at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> so just two years after the American Civil War, Britain's British people are already going right, town to you want to race for a crumpet? <laughs> I'm sorry. It was, yes. it was eight miles. Eight miles between Ashton-under-Lyne and Old Trafford, Manchester. What, what, what day was it? August 30th. And then probably ended August 31st? More than likely. <laughs> I mean, eight miles, you're puttering at like 10 Any. miles per hour. Uh, it's, Maybe it's, a little under. Yeah, let's, let's go with a little under on that yeah, one. No, kid, I'll take the over-under on the that. The winning vehicle was owned by Isaac Watt Bolton, and the vehicle may have been driven by his son, which is uncertain because of these red flag laws in the UK. These are the laws you know that if like to run over helpless pedestrians, that's a red flag. Kidding. Red flag laws were actually inst- were actually instated for flag. they were instated for self-powered vehicles that needed to have a red flag or a lantern in the front of the car to warn pedestrians. Yeah, like, kind of hey, like I might run you over. Kind of like how we have the red kind of a red um hazards on the back of our tr- of our vehicles yeah. in modern day now. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> city to city races <clears throat> would eventually get phased out, especially in France that outlawed them, which is where. Driving in circles became way more common. It's where we would get... We're slowly building into, essentially, NASCAR. Back in the 1880s. Listen. <laughs> there's not a lot to do sometimes. And I mean, it doesn't surprise me that we would want to have racing cars because humans will want to race anything. Horses, buggies. Uh, yeah. Before, though, the 1908 race, there was the Peking to Paris race, now Beijing... Yep. Of 1907. The race was a result of a challenge from a French newspaper called Le Matin, which boasted that the automobile was the future and there needed to be a show of its prowess. There were initially 40 interested entrants in the race. God. Ultimately, there only pro- proved to be five teams that would complete, that would compete in the 1907 race. They were Italy. With a seven-cylinder Itala driven by Prince Scipione Borges and Ettore Guzardi. Thank you. <laughs> the Netherlands, represented with a Spiker driven by Charles Godard and Jean Dutat. Wait, Spiker? S P Y K E R. Yep. They still make cars. Mm hmm. Well, this. Kind of. Driven by Charles Godard and Jean de Tali. Then there were three French teams. No surprise since this was. <laughs> France essentially funding this thing. A three-wheeled cycle car from Cantal that was driven by Auguste Pons, and then two Dédions. The first Dédion team was was driven by Georges Cognier, and then the second Dédion team was driven by Victor Collignon. The only rule for that race was to get to Paris. Hell or high water, they had to get there. The prize was bragging rights and then a bottle of very nice champagne. Not money, not fame, just you Well, the it. fame comes with it. Yeah. But, but not I like mean, big cash prize. I mean, the Indy 500, they have milk. So. <laughs> yeah, they did champagne back then. Listen, motorcycle guys and car guys are simple creatures. Very. Each of the teams was also given a journalist to send wires and telegraphs, updating their respective papers on yep. the progress of each race. They had to. Yeah. This is also a time when paved roads were also fairly new, if not very uncommon. And so a good chunk of the 1907 race was through remote parts of Asia, which would be very difficult for the team. Yeah, that 
seats. Not to mention, bridges were not designed for the weight of automobiles. Maybe a horse and a buggy, but that was about it. Out of all the teams, the Contal, which was that three-wheeled cycle car I told you about, mm-hmm. C-O-N-T-A-L, if you want to look it up. Yeah. It looks like a little soapbox car. Not even kidding. It never made it out of China. It got stuck in the Gobi Desert. August... I feel like I watched that episode of Top Gear. <laughs> <laughs> August Pons and his team were lucky to have been found by local nomads. They were nursed back to health and then made their way back to Paris by train. The winner of the race was the Atala, driven by Prince Bourget, or Borges, Italians, Borges. Charles Godard of the Spiker team was arrested for fraud. He, cla- <laughs> <laughs> he claimed the Le Matin had set him up because he was driving a Dutch vehicle. Those Dutch bastards. If this was also a time when nationalism was very much the thing for a lot of places. So yeah. this is, again, pre-World War One. But with that race over, that led to calls for a more spectacular race. Sure, Beijing to Paris was nice. You made it away across, made across Asia and Europe. But now we need something bigger. And so, one that went around the world would be the case. Before we go around the world, yes, and because we've been talking about Paris so much, shoot, I'm not a car. Or I'm not a car guy. I just said I'm a car. You guy. are a car guy. You're lying. I'm to not yourself. a sport guy. There you go. But the two. The few sports I do follow are mostly motorsports. The Paris Dakar Rally. Mm-hmm. Holy hell. You talk about a endurance race. I can imagine. I mean, around the world's a monster, but Paris to, I believe, Dakar was... Uh, oh, yeah. Middle Africa? South Africa area? Like, that's a race. And they were doing this. They started in 73... And they, so they were running basically stock car, stock vehicles with some knobby tires on them. The car rally, <clears throat> yes. Oh my goodness! Yep, Saudi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness, that is a race. Yeah, Ooh. that's the longest rally race, and it is all off road. That was the rally race. This is the longest race in history. Yes. But anyway, yes, yep. I love that race. <laughs> the initial route of the initial route of this 1908 race involved crossing the United States north through Canada into Alaska before crossing the Bering Strait into Russia, particularly Siberia. You got to get through Siberia, then to Moscow, and then get to Berlin, Germany, and then finally Paris, France. The New York Times had also joined in with Le Matin to sponsor the race. The race would be good sales for the Times since it would likely be take over half a year to complete. Plus all the papers just selling for updates on the race. Yeah. Now that the route was chosen, then came the racers and the cars. Obviously, France had to get its foot in the door, and three car companies would lend their vehicles for this occasion. The Dédion, Motoblock, and Césaire Nodin. Okay. I was going to say Peugeot has to be in there, but nope, nope. it's not. The Dédion team consisted of a team lead of team lead <clears throat> Bossier Saint Chaffre, mm-hmm. engineer Captain Hans Hendrik Hansen, and Monsieur Atren, another engineer. The Dédion team was a thirty horsepower was a thirty horsepower touring car outfitted with extra gas tanks and a variety of tools, and even reinforcing the frame with wood to combat brittleness from the cold. This was also the largest of the cars. Now. 
I do want to talk about Captain Han- Hansen for a second because this guy, this guy is the most interesting man in the world. Does so, he drink those seconds? About to, well, <clears throat> possibly. He was tall and angular in build. His face gave off an intelligent glow, but he was also a little fun, thanks to this opulent red mustache he wore. He could also drive very well, as he was an engineer. Let me actually find you the photo of him, because... By the way, I will say this. The photo I'm about to send you, we can't use due to copyrights. So, so unfortunately, like, you know, look him up. He's actually a very fun dude, so... A Thomas Flyer is a gorgeous little car. I'm not a big fan of pre-World War One vehicles. vehicles, but that's not a bad-looking one. That's Captain Hansen I just sent you, by the way. He looks... Okay, so... And he and that is his uniform. I have a whole reason why he's in that uniform. So if they ever made a movie based off this race... Yes. Hugh Laurie. Okay, I can see that. But let's see. Captain Hansen was Norwegian, married to a Russian woman, and he lived in Siberia. So... Willingly? Yes. <laughs> so he already okay. kind of had a... He already, so Bossier kind of... So uh, Sancha Frey, the lead for the Dedion team... Kind of had a an ace in the hole with this guy. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, Hansen was also a womanizer. So, as, a, as some adventurers are wont to be, he was also fluent in every major language between New York and Paris. English, Russian, German, Chinese, French, Spanish, as well as several Siberian dialects. I can barely speak English on a good day. Me too. <laughs> so this guy's... Jesus. He was... Even more, he engineered railroads in South America... He explored for oil in Siberia. He sailed to the Columbian Exposition World's Fair in Chicago, 1893, in a Viking ship from Norway across the Atlantic and through the Great Lakes. And, to top it off, he had a hobby, a hobby of rescuing people who got lost trying to explore the North Pole. Did I not tell you most interesting man in the world? I've run out of normal things to do. I'm going to learn all the languages. What are you going to do after that? Eh, I'll probably go rescue people from Santa Claus. Pretty much. (laughs) What are you going to do after that? Um, I don't know. Sail a Viking ship into the Great Lake. Who the fuck finds it? I'm going to Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) He was also called Captain... Because of his dark blue military uniform that you saw the photo of, as well as a rank that he had gotten when he quelled a revolution in Argentina. Single-handedly with a butter knife, maybe? He fought on the side of the Argentine Navy, so, yeah. (laughs) What is that man coming across the fields? It's Captain Hansen. Run! I mean, I thought, it's like, this guy is the 1908 version of Chuck Norris, if I had to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to explore Hansen more because he was just such a fascinating character, but I was like, nope, we got to focus on focus on the race. Now, the mo- the motorblock. We, though, to- we can talk about Hansen. Like, oh, yeah. we can we can divert course for a minute. Big time. Or 10. For the next 2 hours, no. <laughs> the motorblock team consisted of Charles Godard, the very same who was arrested at the end of the 1907 race. Arthur Hugh, a mechanic, and Maurice Livier, a cameraman. Goddard had paid off his old debts by now, but 
after talking with the with Motoblock, the company, about entering their car and winning the race, he felt he would be able to pay enough of everything back many times over. The Motoblock was the second largest car in the race. M O T O Thomas Flyer. M O T O B L O C, like communist block. B L O C. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very classic, like canopied old timey car. Didion Bhutan car. You're looking at him right now. Germans in Protos car, 1908 New York. About to get there too. 1906 Zust. That's another one. The third place. Yep. The Cesar Nadine team consisted of August Pons. The very same pawns who got stuck in the Gobi Desert, Maurice Burt, and Lucien Deschamps. The Cezanne Nodine was a small two-seater four-wheel drive. Pawns upgraded from his three-wheeler. Oh, thank God he got that extra <laughs> wheel bit finally on there. <laughs> he, believed, he believed a lighter vehicle was better suited for long travel compared to heavier vehicles. Uh, I can see the logic on that, yeah. It, it weighed only about 3,300 pounds compared to uh, the 6,600-pound uh, De Dion. It had a one-cylinder engine that could generate 15 horsepower. My God, we're talking high performance. Speed demon indeed. And I looked at photos of these uh, Cesar Nadines. They look like you're... They look like a bit of a classic... Uh, Shut stock, up, Ted. Stock car sort of thing, you know what I mean? Stock, like... Like, like my brain immediately went NASCAR. I was like, <laughs> no, it no, looks like, like an 07 like, Monte Carlo, like a like a like a soapbox on those. Okay, like a soap like a, a soapbox, soapbox car, okay. like a soapbox with a long engine that didn't do much. So yeah, basically anything any pre war looking vehicle. Basically, yeah, at that point. although this was a single seater. Remember, it was not very big. Well, yeah, so it was a two seater, but regardless. The De Dion and the Motorblock teams would even travel out to the Alps, where they would test their cars in ice and deep snow, as well as finding efficient ways to shovel their cars out of snowdrifts. This was starting in February, so there was going Why to be... Why would you... God. I'm going to mention this I'm gonna mention this a little bit later, but the reason why they did, and I'm going to say this anyway, it's going to come up later. The reason why they did it in, the, in February was because they wanted to have the racers get across the Bering Strait, it would be frozen over, so yep. that way they could get across the ice sense. bridge. That was the intention. Yeah. As the French teams were getting ready, there were three other countries that would be represented in the race. Germany, Italy, and the United States. Many Germans felt that... And we showed up in a 68 Camaro. You know it. Camaro. 1868 Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> Still looks prettier than the current ones. Yeah. <clears throat> Many Germans felt that there needed to be a German car in the race, since there wasn't one in 1907, and there was much debate whether it should be a Benz or a Daimler. Italy wanted Prince Borges to enter into the race once again, since he'd won the first race, but he said he was done with racing and wanted to travel the globe on his own terms, even abandoning his wife and kids in the process. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. Not everybody is noble in this race, I'll be honest. I mean, obviously. <laughs> it should also be no surprise in the United States, there were initially several automotive companies that wanted oh, to join yeah. the race, but <clears throat> many of them quickly and quietly backed out. The main man for the German team was Oberlieutenant Hans Kroppen of the 15th Prussian Infantry. He knew next to nothing about automobiles and was more at home riding a horse than in a car. 
He stood about six foot tall, solidly built, and would sometimes wear a mustache with his close-cropped dark hair. Military mustache, not yes. one like mine or Captain Hans. His main reason for wanting to partake in the race was patriotism, and he felt that he might that it might assist him in getting promoted from lieutenant to captain. Don't, Sound logic? I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah. He would have some difficulty getting his car, though, after talking with the director of the Imperial Automobile Club. He was directed to a car company in Berlin called Protos. While the company wanted to enter a car in the race, it would not pay for expenses except for spare parts. Ooh. So Copen, so Copen would now have to pay for it as well as his Copen team would have to cop up. Yep, he and his team would have to make would have to pay the expenses. He also needed to get a team, and he found a, a couple of them: Hans Nape and Ernst Maas. M A A S. All three of them had to pay their own way in the race, with a German newspaper footing the rest. Nape would be doing most of the driving as he started out in the infantry of the Prussian army before being transferred to the engineering corps. So, he knew his, he knew his engines already, which is yeah. good. As for the car, the Protoss was being built from scratch, as all Protoss cars were built to order. It would take weeks to build, so they had to triple the pace with over 600 men working to build oh, this car, gosh. night and day. Good God. It wouldn't be finished until a few hours before the German team would miss the boat. So just before, so just before, so it was ready, just... Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Germans were late for something? I know, right? It's insane. My God. This car, it looked more like an army truck than it did a car. And it was... Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it. It looks, uh... Yeah. It was outfitted... <laughs> Professionally built. It was outfitted with six fuel tanks, totaling 176 gallons of gasoline. Damn. You can probably get that for like two bucks now. Right. <laughs> uh, Sign of the times. Copen anyway. <laughs> also had to get a leave of absence because he was active duty in the Prussian military. He managed to get it just a few days before the team was to leave. Personally signed by Kaiser Wilhelm II. This granted six months of leave, but no more after that. Wait, but, but they said it'd probably take about a year. About half a year. Oh, okay. To half do the, a year. To okay, do the I race. misheard you. I thought it was like... Yeah, it start... I'm gonna just jump ahead and say this. It started in February, ended in July. Okay. So, it, so they got... So, he was given more than enough time to get around the world. For the Italians, since their precious prince was no longer interested in the race, they had to look elsewhere. A young 21-year-old Italian named Antonio Scarforio decided he wanted to tell the story for his father's paper, Le Matino. Matin, it, Matino, Matin, they, they're, it's a Latin word that means um, morning. Yeah. So, the team would consist of Scarfolio, as well as Emilio Sirtori, who was a professional car driver, and Henry Haga, a German mechanic. The three officially met for the first time on a train that would take them to Le Havre in Paris. A harbor to get them yeah, across to get them the... Yeah, over. Yeah. Haga couldn't speak Italian, but he knew machines, and that's what mattered to Scarfolio. A fourth team member would be joining them, a Zeus businessman named Arthur Ruland, who felt the race would boost Zeus sales in America. Yep. 
And apparently the original 1906 Zeus is actually in private collector's hands, which I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yes, it, and that's a bizarre-looking car itself, too. They all are fairly bizarre-looking yeah. compared to what we know nowadays. Oh, yeah. And finally was the U.S. team, which consisted of Montague Roberts, or Monty Roberts, George, Sush- George Schuster, I can't say that properly, and T. Walter Williams. Roberts was a young 25-year-old. He trained for races, unlike most race car drivers. Punching bags, running, etc. Most drivers, they just were very stiff and didn't do much. Yeah. He actually trained, because this is a time when we don't have power steering, so you're actually having to really yeah, move. You are not winning with, you're fighting the car to win. Yep. He was born in Pittsburgh, but he grew up in Jersey City. He served as a mechanic in the Army's Ordnance Department. He built the first gas-powered artillery truck ever used by the Army. Jesus. Okay. After the Army, Roberts would deliver cars built by the United States Long Distance Car Company. And he would not just deliver them, but he would also demonstrate how to drive the cars, usually remaining with clients for up to a month. Damn. Yeah, you couldn't just walk. You couldn't just walk to a dealership. They brought them to you and said, mm-hmm. "All right, here's how you're gonna drive, just so you can get easy with it." Yep. He even gave driving lessons to Franklin Roosevelt, the future president. Nice. Okay, that's quite the uh, quite the portfolio on oh, uh, on, on already that guy. for 25 years old. Yeah. Schuster was personally requested by Roberts. One of 21 children to a German blacksmith. Good God. The blacksmith did marry like three times in his very long life. Schuster Schuster would help his father out in the smithy where when he was a young kid. And when we have 21 kids, a lot of them are going to be put to work in the smithy. With his knowledge of blacksmithing, Schuster initially worked in manufacturing of bicycles with the Thomas Company before it became an automotive company. Williams was assigned as the Times reporter for the American team. The car that they would drive was the Thomas Flyer, as we have mentioned. This particular Thomas Flyer was actually custom-ordered for a man in Boston who had asked for two more seats in the back, making it a four-seater. The Boston client would be getting another Thomas Flyer made instead. (laughs) I mean, it's like, well, we have it on hand. Let's just take it anyway. Okay, boss. The guy in Boston's like, wicked what? (laughs) And there goes our Boston audience. I got, I'm, I got people, I got relatives in Boston. It's fine. It's okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I've got friends in that my, are Boston's. My grandparents have the thickest Boston accents ever, dude. I grew up with it. And now all the teams had to get to New York for the Americans. This would be easy. <laughs> I would hope. I, I mean, the Thomas Company is up in Buffalo, so right down there, real easy, real quick. Listen, still. The European teams all had tearful farewell receptions and good lucks given to them as they hopped on ships that carried them across. Once arriving in the U.S., it was only a matter of time to get to Times Square. And on the morning of February 12th, 1908, New York was abuzz. At 9.07 and some change. (laughs) You're not wrong, actually. Seemingly a little more than usual, though. A massive crowd had been gathering on Broadway on the cold but clear day. The crowd was excited to see the start of the race. The Tribune reported that by 10, o- by 10 o'clock, Broadway up by the northernmost reaches of Harlem looked as though everyone was expecting the circus to come to town. This race would certainly prove several things that would go into the history books. 
The racers would have to deal with three challenges, as well as three legs to this race, with the destination being Paris from New York. You would think it'd be easy to just sail across the Atlantic, but instead, we're going to go the opposite way. There was distance, nature, and cars themselves. And the cars themselves, that was the three challenges. The route was in place. The distance from New York, going west to Paris, was 22,000 miles. Or 35,405.56 kilometers. Long distance. I see Tony over there just kind of... Yeah, I'm trying to do math, and I forget I have an Oklahoma public education, so it's a, carry it's a, on. It's a lot of math. It's a lot of... They drive far. They drive far. They drive far. First, the racers would have to travel across the United States, then yep. get over the Pacific, before finally making it across the Eurasian continent to Paris. That was the distance. Next was nature. This was a time when we didn't have many paved roads outside of some cities... Plus, there was weather and the seasons that the racers would be subjected to. And finally, was the cars themselves. Automobiles had only been in the world for maybe 20 years or so, so not a long time. So they were yeah. still seen as less reliable than horses by many. I mean, and they probably weren't wrong with some of them. No, no, back in the day, like, they had reason to be, uh, Luddites. Finally... At 11.15 a.m., the starting pistol mm. fired, and the race had begun. There had been a detachment of police horses to lead the way and clear a path for the racers to get out of New York. It's like, clear the streets, clear the streets, come on! <laughs> Nay! Behind the police procession was the Césaire Nadine with August Pons at the wheel. In second place was the Motoblock. Third was the Thomas Flyer. The Protoss was rolling into, fifth, into fourth place. In fifth was the Dedion, and bringing up the rear was the Zeust. It was more like a parade, honestly, by the looks of this. Yeah. A procession of other motor cars followed the participants until the racers reached Yonkers. By then, the cheering fans had turned around back for New York City. Now the fun part was over. Roughly 45 miles north of New York, August Pons thought he had the lead until he noticed something strange. The sun was on his right when it should have been on his left. He was headed south back to New York City. He turned around and corrected his course quickly. <laughs> oh my god. The other racers had now made better headway, making their way through Westchester County and the snowy roads. The Zeus was in the lead, compared to the Protoss team. Culpen believed a slow and steady drive would surmount victory, being careful with yeah, the snowy roads. The hmm? Tortoise in the hair theory. Yeah. yeah. He believed the other racers would eventually drop out of the race, and the Protoss would continue without competition. So I respect that understanding. Yeah, that's that's a legit strategy to do it. The Zeus, like uh, Scarfolio and Sertori, they like just gunning. Just, oh, yeah. That's I mean, their, that was their attitude. Now, keep in mind, the drivers are going without proper roadmaps, too, because many oh, of the God. routes, because they, they were not properly paved. There was no such thing as a route back then. There was no maps for that. They would stop and ask for directions when they needed the help, though. I would hope. At 310, the Thomas Flyer made it into Poughkeepsie. Montague Roberts was now donning a leather football helmet for protection because of the cold winds. Yeah. The team stopped for a lunch to warm up. 3.50, the Dedeon appear arrives in Poughkeepsie. Just as Saint-Chaffre was about to get out and go for lunch as well, the Zeus zoomed by, not stopping for a few blocks. Just... Brrr. I can already imagine the, the sound, too. I really can. Those old... Sacre bleu! 
Oh, that, that's the that's the Italian. Spaghetti carbonara. All right, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Mario. <laughs> the Thomas Flyer witnessed this, and the the team quickly got back on the race. They're just like, nope, <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Come on. Sancha Frey begrudgingly hurried his lunch before he too was cha- before he too chased after the Zeus. I failed to mention that Sancha Frey he. He has he uh he's related I think nephew or something akin to that to the owner of the Dedion Company, so he's got some sense of nobility. Of course, he does. so that's why he begrudgingly hurried his lunch. He he's how like, dare they? He's like I take it easy. I do what I do. Uh huh. Roberts was a Roberts. Hold my cigarette. I'm going to beat <laughs> these guys. Roberts was aware of the area they were in because it was around Hyde Park, where he had trained a young FDR on the Roosevelt estate. The snowdrifts began to get deeper the more north the, and rural the cars got. At one point, the American team were told a shortcut by an old farmer, but the shortcut <laughs> led to That's a... That's not... Nope. <laughs> but, the, but the shortcut led to a dead end with three-foot snowdrifts. That sounds familiar. This was not uncommon for rural folks back then who despised automobiles. Oh, yeah. They would leave out nails on the roads or even take (laughs) pot shots at motorists while at a hidden distance. Are we talking about the 1908 World Race or are we talking about pod racing in Star Wars? Maybe both. A little bit of both. At this point, Tuscan Raiders, yeah. (laughs) The Zeus and Dedeon teams were also stuck up this way. Roberts and the rest of the Thomas Flyer team managed to get out and on the road before reaching Hudson, where they would stay the night. Fifty miles behind the other racers was August Pons in the Césaire Nadine. It struggled to get up a steep incline when the engine died. The Frenchman made his way to a, the first farmhouse he'd found and asked for shelter from the cold, with speaking with what little English he had. Ultimately, he took a train back to New York, then a ship back to France. The Césaire Nadine was officially out of the race. Yep. So August Pons couldn't finish two races. The car was fixed and transported back to Pons. So now we're down to five racers instead of six. The Zeus and Dedion also made it to Hudson for the night, while the Protoss had stayed in Poughkeepsie, and the Motoblock team was in peak skill. A lot of names coming in here. While Hudson... While in Hudson, a horse had gotten spooked and ran away. The owner of the horse complained to the police, thinking it was one of the cars that had come in last night. The, there, were, there were at least two of the suspects that they had in mind was the Thomas Flyer and the Day to Yawn, but those had left early in the morning. There was only one suspect they could pick, and that was the Zeus. So the police gave Scarfolio a $3 fine that he had to pay off. $3 for a spooked horse. I mean... Currency exchange rate on that. Back in the day, man, three dollars was a curious. lot. <laughs> yeah. Kind of curious what the exchange rate is for that. I'll let you when you get back to me on that one. While on the drive, Schuster of the Thomas Flyers team, he was concerned with his wife's health because she'd gotten sick just before the race had started. He stayed with the team because they would lose a day waiting for another mechanic, and Schuster could get faster messages. Oh, God. Oh, dude, tell me. Three... Okay, Tony got it. Three dollars, nineteen oh eight. Three dollars and nineteen... Oh, wait, that's a euro. Nineteen oh eight. Come on. Get it right. Hang on. Hang on. It was set to euros for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, Schuster stayed with the team 
but because he was afraid they would lose a day waiting for another mechanic. And he, with the advent of telegrams and everything, Schuster would get could get faster messages on his wife's health as he continued along, which that gave him some sense of ease. The Motoblock team had stopped in peak skill because the car had gotten stuck in a snowdrift, and it took them hours to try and clear the car out before arriving at 1 a.m. at a hotel in Peekskill. They would have to wait for breakfast for several hours because it was served at a certain time and... and Godard was not having it. The three cars, dro the three cars in the lead drove close and single file because of the snowy conditions. The dead yawned went off the road at one point and the Thomas Flyer was used to tow it out. Okay, so I can go all the way back to 2024. Or, I can go all the way back to 2024. Uh -huh, that's how it works. Okay, so farthest I can go back is 1914. So $3.1914 to now. $92. 92 bucks. So that's about, still not bad. No, not bad. Like, I've had... I've had... To I've totally not had speeding tickets for more than that, but... I've had a broken... T I've had a broken taillight that was more than that. Yeah. That was a $2 fix. Inflation... The Zeus tried to speed ahead, but this proved fruitless because it got stuck in the snow shortly after. That I told you, the Zeus tries to speed ahead like zoom zoom. They were all eventually received in Albany, where there was a massive banquet, and this would happen in pretty much every location they went to. Many of the big towns, they would the racers would be treated across America to banquets and celebrations like welcome racers. Treated to hospitality and very yeah, nice hotels. That's, that's yeah, that sounds about right. As they as the racers left the banquet at Albany, the temperature <clears throat> began to warm up, which proved problematic due to the snow melting, and the trek was now slick and muddy. Mm -hmm. While making their way out of Schenectady, the lead teams found that the main route was impassable due to these conditions. <clears throat> they were suggested to take a towpath along the Erie Canal since it wouldn't be in use during this time. Towpaths, for those unfamiliar, is were essentially used for used by horses to pull uh, boats and small yeah. small rafts along the canal to docking yeah. bays. Yeah. So basically just a sort of a land tugboat. Yeah. So they were like, well, take this, and it, it was narrow, so they had to... It wouldn't be too big, but just enough for the cars to get through. Yeah. Just back to the protos. The Germans were taking their time as they shoveled snow and made roadside repairs. They got to Albany in the late afternoon, where they were treated to a smaller dinner. Copen would tell stories of the past few days of his perilous journey. Nape and Moss did not attend, although they were invited. They just were like, "Ah, we, we're tired. We want to go sleep." And it makes sense for Copen. He's not. He's just sitting there as the team captain. He's not actually driving. Yeah. He's just there to regale stories and. You know, Germany forever sort of thing. Be careful how you phrase that. I said that sort of thing. I made certain that I made certain I made certain to keep. I know how to be careful with myself here. Godard, Godard, and the Motorblock team made their way into Poughkeepsie. They were, he was also asked if he was concerned if he was uh, lagging, and Godard said, "I travel far, not fast." <laughs> the three teams made the three. Uh, lead teams made good use of the towpath, but they stopped in Fonda when it got dark. 
Also, just to ease up anybody's minds, George Schuster received a message that his wife was doing better, so he was going to be fine without that. The race was back on properly, and the Zeus was able to get in front of the Thomas Flyer and the De Dion. Scarfolio was excited to finally drive as vehicles were intended to be driven. Fast! Ricky Bobby, gotta go fast! If you ain't first, you're last. Mm-hmm. Roberts and the Thomas Flyer kept up with the Zeus, while the Dedeon stayed behind, remaining careful on the towpath. I was kind of waiting for one of them to, like, fall into the canal because they were going too fast on the tow... On the towpath? On the towpath, yeah. The front racers had made it to the Utica now, where Scarfolio felt at home thanks to many of the Italians living there, offering warm welcomes and cheering on the Italian team. The three lead teams were then eventually mired in the Montezuma Swamp, and awaited farm horses to help them out while it rained on them. <laughs> Scarfolio <laughs> accused Roberts of cheating, which led to a lot of bickering. There was a lot of bickering, arguing, claims of cheating throughout the race. After all of that, the racer, the three teams came to an agreement. Alternate leadership every five hours. So, so for five hours, the Zeus. For five hours, the Thomas Flyer. And for another five hours, the De Dion. Just as a gentleman's agreement, yeah. Cause they're all tre- they're all trekking through marshes and just not great areas. No, mm-hmm. no. The cars finally reached Buffalo, New York, with the Thomas Flyer being the first to do so. The day Dion had stopped in Rochester because Captain Hansen was giving interviews, even claiming Roberts was cheating and not doing his fair share of work in breaking the snow trails. But there was no snow on the trail. The ground had frozen over, and Roberts was adept at driving in these conditions. Although, he did crash through a fence in Buffalo because he was trying to avoid reporters and parked cars. The Thomas Flyer got a... Going so great for everyone. Yeah, the Thomas Flyer got a flat tire, but it eventually was serviced at the Thomas factory proper. Yeah. The Pierce Company, a competitor of the Thomas Company, had offered to help service the foreign race cars, which... Makes sense. It's like, you're against our competitor. We want to help you and show that we're just as good. Yep. While the vehicles were being serviced, all the racers were guests of honor at another banquet. Schuster had slipped away to check on his wife because they lived in Buffalo. So he wanted to go check on her. The protost was no further ahead than the motoblock, about 50 miles. Legitimately, they had been dealing with so many different... um, breakdown such as the fuel line breaking oh that's a great one to have happen the protos also had four flat tires because they couldn't handle the incredible weight of the automobile which was about seven thousand pounds jesus christ so these are heavy like we're talking this is this is steel bodies dude yeah it's steel bodies a little bit of wood and more steel yeah on on the steel with some more steel on the side the Zeus was still in a solid third place at this point, but had been stuck in Rochester because the car flipped over. The Zeus team managed to leap out in time into the snow, but it would take six hours to set the car right and then repairs would be made quickly. Yeah, because it weighs nine million pounds. Scarfolio says that the delay was instigated by Italian-Americans in Rochester who offered to help, but also to celebrate the Italian team. Sertori, Emilio Sertori, the mechanic, he was now behind the wheel, and he made the Zeus drive to Buffalo. 
It had been agreed that the teams would stop in Rochester, but the Dead Eon team and Thomas Flyer did not wait. They just kept on going. By dawn, the Zeus made it to Buffalo. Sir Tori had not slept in 24 hours. We're going to learn, as the rest of this goes, Sir Tori, not a sleeper. He drives. Too much Coke. Too much Coca-Cola. So, basically... So how many cars are we down to at we're this point? We're still with the five cars. Okay, we're it's still with five. It's just they are had a just lot getting... of fucking bad luck. And they, what was the last city they were in? They just left Rochester. They just left uh, Buffalo and were now heading for Erie, Pennsylvania. So they haven't even left the state they started in and all of this has happened. Yes. Just this to is... put that into context, they haven't made it 500 miles. This is a treacherous race. I can't, cannot stress this enough. <laughs> it's treacherous because of the time frame they did it in. Jesus Christ. The Dead Eon team, after some fireworks from Captain Hansen to Saint Chaffre, Captain Hansen essentially was saying, You are a slow bastard. Get moving. And Saint Chaffre <laughs> said, Okay, fine, fine. I don't care. Fine, I will drive faster. It was soon in hot pursuit of the Zeus. The Zeus was now in the lead once again. The Zeus with a six-hour lead. A six-hour lead. Yeah, and that's a massive amount for anything sport, anything car racing related. Hansen would now recant his complaints about Monty Roberts because he was now having to deal with Sancho Frey, who didn't feel that sense of urgency about the race. With the daddy on the move, that meant there was no rest for the Thomas Flyer. Schuster wasn't happy with a quick getaway, but his mind was okay knowing that his wife was back to usual health. Yeah. I mean, he got to see his wife before they had to leave again. So I'd say that's a good that's mental good. break. Yeah, you know? that's a good mental stimulant to keep going. The Thomas Flyer would be getting another team member, George Miller. He was a factory mechanic for the Thomas Company. Nice. There's also like three Georges in this story. So Schuster, Miller, and then another guy, McAdams, who was a uh, an, a reporter. So they're all by last name. Oh yeah, only. I keep forgetting they have they have completely useless reporters on their on their cars as well. Pretty much. <laughs> Roughly 100 miles down the road, the Dead Eon came upon an amusing sight. The Zeus was on the side of the road, broken down. <laughs> God, Zeus. By Zeus's beard. The Dead Eon <laughs> zoomed by without slowing down. I'm sure middle fingers were a-flying. Speaking of, the Thomas Flyer also paid the same respects a little while later. Of course, <laughs> because America. Morale for some of the teams was definitely proving difficult. <laughs> In the Dead Eon, Hansen and Shafre still had an animosity toward each other. And in the Protoss, the atmosphere was different amongst the German team. It was much worse because the team members weren't talking to each other. Roberts, Montague Roberts, remember him? He is stu they're, they're stopped in Erie. He couldn't sleep because he was worried the Zeus would zoom through the night and leave the Thomas Flyer and the Dead Eon in the dust. It never happened because... The Zeus was essentially limping from its wreck in Rochester. The radius rod had been damaged in the wreck. So when I, why I mentioned that there are going to be, they're going to be um, mechanical issues. Yeah, we're talking springs broken, the radius rod going out, cracked cylinders at one point. There's a lot of stuff oh, that happens God. to these cars, and you couldn't just go to a mechanic shop 
you had to hop on a train and go to a different city for spare parts, then go back. And then hopefully you got the right parts. And you had a day. You would lose a day or two just of this alone. Sometimes a week or two and a half weeks at most. After breakfast, the Thomas Flair and Dedeon were now neck and neck, making their way to Cleveland, Ohio. Ohio! Home of... The... Ohio. The only reason that the Thomas Flair could pull ahead when it got darker was it had headlights. The Dedeon did not. <laughs> I forget that some of those old cars didn't even have headlights back in the day. <laughs> Which one didn't have Dedeon? Oh, wow, the, yeah, it does not the have Dedeon. headlights. Yeah, it does not have headlights. Nope. While the Thomas Flyer and Dedeon team slept in uh, different towns that night, the Zeus managed to get a permanent fix on the radius rod in Erie, and then they zoomed through Cleveland towards Toledo. Meanwhile, the Germans lumbered into Erie, while the Motoblock struggled to just reach Buffalo. They're struggling. We're not even... We're not even... We're just... We're not even uh, halfway through the States. Not even a third of the way through the United States yet. No, they're still on... They're still on the first... They're on the far end of the East Coast, of what I consider the East Coast. Pretty much. The leaders of the race awoke to learn that a horrible blizzard had swept into <clears throat> northern Indiana and most of the upper Midwest, oh my God. shutting the region down. They would. The lead racers would go for three days without stopping, albeit slowly because of the deep snowdrifts. They'd all help each other out with snow shovels, though. Whoever was ahead would shovel the snow back and let the others do the same thing to each other. So it's like, we'll shovel for you, then we should put it back. Shovel for you, put it back. There was some weird gentleman's agreement that was also a little bit of rivalry. February 19th. We're not even a week done, man. We're not even a week through. Jesus. While the lead cars are in Indiana, the Protoss was leaving Erie, Pennsylvania. The Germans were stopped by the storm in Connaught, which was only 23 miles from Erie. A series of mishaps would plague the Protoss, you know, fence post damaging a wheel to falling into an embankment. As it was being towed to Cleveland, it was passed by the motoblock. Now the Protoss was in last place. The Protoss would make its way to Norwalk, where it would be overhauled, but then it broke down shortly after it was ready. Another half hour later, the Protoss was fixed and out of Norwalk, which I'm pretty sure Culpen was very happy with. I would, I would imagine so. The Motoblock and the Protoss were relatively close to each other, you know, kind of being neck and neck for last place. It was essentially, who would be getting fourth place at this point? Who's gonna suck the most? There was some major infighting with the Protoss team, though. Nape and Moss did all the driving. Copen was just the captain of the team. He was much more of a people person than Nape or Moss were. The two mechanics said that there would be an understanding and proper recognition for their work in the race or they would abandon it altogether. They then hopped the train to Chicago to collect parts for the Protoss, while they also rode past the other teams. So, the Protoss is stuck in... The Protoss is stuck in a town, and they have to go to Chicago, which is the biggest city at the time for... Go to fucking Chicago. Chicago. Chicago, get a fucking Chicago dog. In Kendallville, the Dedeon had a broken transmission. Now you're just transmission. making town names up. Huh? <laughs> now you're just making town names There's up. A lot Kendallville. Kendallville, yeah. So Hansen also had to go get uh, parts in Chicago. The Zeus managed to make it to Kendallville while with the Zeus team dirty, exhausted, frozen, and bearded. Satori had driven for 35 hours, although he allowed Haga to try and drive the Zeus, which proved to be more than the young mechanic could handle. 
When the Zeus team arrived in Kendallville, they promptly went to the hotel and got some much-needed rest, which, yeah. 35 hours on the damn road? Yeah. So, side note real quick, Yo. just for comparison of that, what's the longest you've driven in one day? Longest I've driven in one day was... Like, time frame-wise, not like mileage, but like time frame. Uh, I want to say maybe five, six hours. Okay. Not not that bad. Like, it was legitimately from uh, from the OKC Metro to Austin, and that's about a six-hour drive. I did from Baton Rouge to Oklahoma, well, to uh, South Oklahoma. God, that was what? Nine hour, I mm-hmm. think. Because you have to go through that big part of, called Texas. Yeah. And that's that's not fun. That's yeah. a slow burn of a drive. Yeah. So these guys are, they're making steady time for the vehicles they had back then, although the weather's been quite a bitch. The blizzard proved to be very difficult for the racers with unbroken snow on the ground, seven foot tall snow drifts. They would, <laughs> the, the Thomas Flyer got stuck at one point that farmers and country folk would send out their own draft horses to help. Fourteen Clydesdales were used at one point to move the car forward. Good God. The drifts were that Fif- bad. How many Clydesdales? Fifteen? Fourteen. Fourteen. And I had to give that info because I know you know horses and Clydesdales are huge. Clydesdales are very large breed of horse, like yeah. the Budweiser horses. Mm-hmm. Like, God. The, the European teams initially protested this action because they had to pay for the use of horses to get the cars to move, but it was quickly snuffed out when they realized this was the best course of action if they wanted to get through the snow-ravaged region. region. So, Because the Thomas Flyer like, oh, we're Americans. It's like, hey, you guys, let's, let's, let's win the race. So they helped them out. Rah, rah, rah. Rasputin? No. Wrong guy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wrong, wrong episode. The Thomas Flyer had been given another helpful gratuity. The Northern Indiana Railway. I should mention that there was actually a rule instated at the beginning of the race by the race committee wherein you couldn't use the rails. That was a rule. But there was special permission given to the teams when necessary, such as the case with... When necessary. When, when necessary. One person's when necessary is another's, yeah, you didn't really need to. Yeah, but this is the case on that one because yeah. this blizzard just was yeah. bad, and the trains and the trains are going to be um, the tracks are going to be clear for the most part because the train just plowed through. Yeah, they through. got the snow plow on the front, that triangle, that diamond shape. Cowcatcher. Cow, yeah, cowcatcher. The president of this ra- of this railway had given special permission to the Thomas Flyer team to use the electric rail to push ahead. No surprise that the Dadeon team and Zeus reached the same point. And the railroad president couldn't be found, and they would need that special permission. No surprise. I mean, speculation. They arrived in Michigan's... The Thomas Flyer arrived in Michigan City and was ready to get to Chicago. But it was stopped by Paul Pickard, who was assigned to escort the racers from Michigan to Chicago. Even ever the stubborn one, Roberts decided to press ahead and not wait. Pickard was just one of several um, guides who knew the local guides, who yeah, knew the who area knew better, the area. who could be like, yeah. okay, you're going to take, th- okay, you're going to go 40 miles down this way, you're going to hang a left, then you're going to go again for another 200 miles west. What does it matter? We work in kilometers. What's even more, what's even more, there's actually, there was actually quite a lot of um, 
different immigrants, Italian, German, and what have, and French throughout the Midwest who were able to assist the foreign teams as well. So there was help. There was help from almost everybody just to make sure that they could get out. But sadly, though, with Roberts wanting to press forward, the Thomas Flyer got stuck again. Here we go yep. again. I mean, yeah. a two, I mean, a two hundred foot uh, snow drift is pretty rough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Thomas Flyer had finally reached Chicago in on February twenty fifth. So now we're just a couple weeks after everything happened since started. On the 26th, the Dédion and Zeust both arrived in Chicago with Sertori waiting for saint Chaffre in Hobart. Why Sir? Hmm. I could have put the wrong... I guess put the wrong people in by accident. While the teams rested, Hans Nape and Ernst Moss were fixing the latest problem on the Protost in Elkhart, as well as changing out tires. Charles Godard was not far behind when they stopped in Wawaka. In Wawaka, the motorblock was put into a shed and locked before... You know, before being re- before everybody was resting up in a farmhouse, the next day Godard found everything except the car had been stolen. A two hundred and fifty dollars reward was put up for information about the theft, but local law enforcement and justices really couldn't do much to help out. Well, they wouldn't, you know. To add insult to injury, when Godard requested the aid of a local farmer to pay for use of his horses. The farmer never showed back up, and Godard went with someone else to pull the motoblock out of a out of a ditch. The farmer would then go to the police and say that Godard owed him $21. He wouldn't pay, but ultimately to escape... Godard had to pay. He didn't want to, but ultimately yeah, he had to pay the damn just thing. Just to shut it up and get moving on. Yeah, after the police officer pursued him to another town, Osceola, for a total of two... Of $23.75. The two seventy five for uh, the police pursuit. The amount of money back then is still funny to me. I, hmm. yeah. Back in Chicago, there was unrest on the Dedeon team. The, down to the point that San Chaffray and Captain Hansen had reached their peak in, in arguing. Hansen announced he was out of the race. He was done. I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm done with this idiot. Yeah. It had been, the decision was made three days before they got to Chicago when Sanchafre had mocked Hansen's failed attempts to get the Dedeon out of a snowdrift, and a screaming match was held. There was also almost a duel with pistols before Sanchafre said that Hansen was fired, which Hansen simply replied that he quit. <laughs> so there was almost a duel for the honor of these guys. Wow. Whatever the case, the Dedeon was down a team member. The break in Chicago was of no use to Monty Roberts. It was a week behind schedule because, uh, well, the attitudes towards the Zeus team and the Dedeon team were bitter for Roberts. He felt that they had failed in their gentleman's agreement just as much, and it was that wonderful nationalism starting to creep in. Of course. The Thomas Flyer managed to cross the Mississippi River into Iowa with the route taking them through Des Moines and then over the Missouri River on the other side of Iowa. 12 hours twelve hours of driving a day usually equated to driving about 7 miles per hour due to road conditions. They would increase their speeds on the occasion, but for the most part. Race fans, were also, race fans in Iowa were also concerned with conditions of the roads, down to the point that some of the more affluent members would actually drag the main roads with horses, smoothing them out for the racers. 
which was, and this would also be a much more welcoming state than Indiana for a lot of the uh, foreign drivers. Yeah. They would offer to house and protect the cars while the racers slept. Nice. So far as to have security details for the cars, which I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Because, again, keep in mind that there's journalists on these teams and Godard is probably saying, see, Indiana's full of bandits and thieves and they are not caring for us. (laughs) And so Iowa got the news and said, all right, we're going to be nice to these guys. That's what you get in the Midwest. You get real nice folk. You get some nice folk. Or you don't. In Clarence, Iowa, Walter Williams, the journalist for the, uh, journalist for the, uh, for the Thomas Flyer, my brain shot off for a second. Yeah. He had had enough adventure and couldn't continue the race. So he hopped the train to Cedar Rapids and that was it for him. And he just done? He was like, yeah, he, he was out. <laughs> Williams is out. He's not interested. Wow. March 1st, Roberts, Montague Roberts is making good time to Cedar Rapids, which was looking forward to the racers especially for a Sunday when everyone was usually at church. But there was no cheering. Don't want Jesus to find out. No. Can't let Jesus find out. No cheering. Like, everybody can just stand there and, oh, like, ooh, but no cheering. The Zeus and the Dedeon were leaving Chicago after their break. The Dedeon had also found a replacement for Hansen, Emmanuel Lascar. Lascar. Lascar? Lascar. That's something. He was a lawyer and a member of the Chicago Automobile Club. He was French, which made him much more welcome to Saint-Chaffre. Saint-Chaffre was not a big fan of um, Hansen because he was Norwegian. There's a whole bunch of ridiculousness with that one. Also, think about this. There's all these automobile clubs back then. Mm-hmm. Like, back then when it was actually, oh, you owned a car, you were part of this club. Now it's like, you own a car, cool. What's next? What type of car? What type of car do you have before you join our club? It should be no surprise that the Italian and French teams were wary of anyone that they met just because they they were afraid they'd be sent on the wrong path. Yeah. Cedar Rapids proved to help these misgivings go away, and the Frenchmen and Italians were treated fairly well by the city. The Dedeon would get stuck in Cedar Rapids for a week due to mechanical problems. All those ruts in the mud did its job. Let's see, the Thomas Flyer had gained massive headway, reaching the middle of Iowa in the college town of Ames. Here, the Zeust arrived a few days later after the Thomas Flyer, and it was met with great enthusiasm, but did get its Italian flag stolen by some of the college students. A new one... Because college students. Because college students are dicks. Yes. The new one was sewn by a local aim, by a local of Ames, and it was given as a gift to the Italians. So, not everybody's an asshole in Ames, it's just the college students in Ames are assholes. Ames, isn't that... Is that just Iowa... It's central Iowa, yeah. Well, I know, but that's which colleges? I think I, that's just Iowa. I don't uh, know. Guys. I don't know. Yeah. Now just... Now, leaving Boone, Iowa, the Thomas Flyer had suffered a mishap when it got stuck in five feet of gumbo. And I got curious what the hell gumbo was. It's a type of soil that has vast amounts of expandable clay. So when the clay gets wet, it expands 14 <laughs> times its original amount. Plus it gets a little sticky. So gumbo is an appropriate name for this stuff. My first thought was, how do you go into that much gumbo and not piss off someone in Louisiana? I know, right? <laughs> like, now, my initial reaction was like, but it's like a soup. Like, you can just drive through the soup. I had to look up what gumbo was. I did not know. And I was like, oh, it's a, it's I, essentially a very clay-filled soil. I like mine better. I know. I, I like, because now, now March I want gumbo. F- March 3rd, 
the Thomas Flyer was out of Iowa. Roberts wasn't sorry to leave because he regarded the state as nothing more than a giant streak of mud, practically a skid mark. The Zeus was just outside the town of Denison when it lost a tire, and they would lose two days because of this. Back in Chicago, the Motoblog team had finally reached the city by the end of the first week of March. No surprise, Goddard still had issue with people trying to make him pay exorbitant amounts of money for goods. The next day, the Protos arrived in Chicago. Copen was asked about his lagging team, and if he'd ship the car up to Seattle, he said that the shortcut, that, you know, shipping the car to Seattle on train was against the rules. He was not going to do it. He was going to stay, he was going to stay an honorable man, apparently, to the, uh, to the end of this. After, uh-huh. after the Protos arrived, Nape and Moss quit, giving Copen an ultimative. Either he left the car, or they left, and since he wasn't going to leave... They were gone. He was now alone in Chicago. No crew and a broken car. (laughs) He was able to find a garage that could fix the Protos, which had the reverse and high gears shredded, as well as a malfunctioning slash damaged gas pump. He had sent... Copen had sent a... had sent a cable to Madame Gadsky, a German opera singer who was living in New York who had hosted Kopen and his former teammates when they first arrived. She was she was very much, you know, this big opera singer who he he respected very much. Yeah. He had asked if she knew anybody who could drive well, and she said she did. Her favorite chauffeur, O.W. Snyder, who lived in Chicago, was not only just a mechanic, he was also a German. Ah. So that worked out for Kopen. Kopen inquired about Snyder's military history. Because, think about it, this is a time when a lot of people came across. If he was considered a military dodger or something back then, Copen didn't want that. Yeah. Didn't want that on his own. A lot um, of pride and... Yeah. But Snyder had actually served three years in the infantry, then received an honorable discharge. So, Snyder was hired. March 7th, the Protoss and Motoblock were scheduled to leave Chicago, with the Motoblock going first, leaving the Protoss behind. Livier, the replacement for Hansen, had managed to find a new camera to replace the one stolen back in Wawaka. But why did I say replacement for Hansen? Wrong team altogether. The Motoblock. We'll get there. There's I only a up. few dozen names. I messed up on this one. There are so many names, it's messed up. But Livier, not the replacement for Hansen, that was a, that was a different guy. Livier managed to find a new camera to replace the one stolen in Wawaka. Five hours after the Motoblock had left, the Protoss was on the road as well. The Protoss was still once again suffer some engine trouble, but this was remedied. Now, although dealing with mud, which sucked. The Motoblock was shipped to Iowa by train, but Godard was then told by race officials he had to backtrack and make up the mileage he had bypassed. He was going to try to cheat. Sancho Frey... And cheaters never win, unless yeah. they do. So he had to go all the way back to where he initially sent the, tra- sent the car from and had to go from there. Meanwhile, San Chaffre found himself stuck in different ta- in different Iowa towns for 11 days, all with different repairs needed for the day beyond. Cracked frame, broken drive shaft, failed driving gear, you know. Minor inconveniences. Yes. Minor. San Chaffre made claims that the Americans had cheated by swapping out their engine twice and that the Thomas Flyer had been pulled by streetcars in Indiana. He also continued to throw Captain Hansen under the bus. Speaking of Hansen... He decided to be forgiving of the squabble between him and Sancho Frey. 
He also made a quick trip to talk to E.R. Thomas, the owner and founder of Thomas Motors and sponsor of the Flyer. Hansen hopped the train west and met the Flyer in Omaha, Nebraska. He was back in the race, this time with the Thomas Flyer team. When the Thomas Flyer had arrived, they were treated to new clothes and food, as well as guests of honor, at a party held by none other than Buffalo Bill Cody. What the fuck is happening in this I race? I know, right? After the party, the racers were treated to indoor roller skating, which apparently Captain Hansen could not get the hang of. So that's one thing Captain Hansen can't do. He can't roller skate indoors. <laughs> I just, I, okay, so they're, I know you just said, I. where are they at again? They're in Omaha. Omaha, Nebraska. Nebraska. What wacky, what in the wacky races, Hanna-Barbera, <laughs> Goober, Gumball Rally is this? What is happening right now with all of this? <laughs> I know, right? The most famous person in town, Buffalo Bill, welcomes them to a party as guests of honor. <laughs> they probably didn't even know who he was. No, nah, they did. He did. He had been doing. Oh his... no, it was the Thomas Flyer, right? Yeah. Okay. The so, Thomas yeah, Flyer. No, yeah, they no, were. They no, knew no, no. who he was. Okay. He'd been doing his traveling western shows yeah, for years. I was years. thinking the Italians rolled up. Uh, who is this? No, 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 no. Let's see. The Thomas was once again on the move. Uh, he did ask the people of Omaha to treat the rest of the racers with the same enthusiasm and openness that the Thomas Flyer team had been treated to. You know, just as a good, as like a, you know, a good wealth, good, um, good energy sort of situation. I forgot the word. Good faith. That's it. The Zeust was on the tracks of the Illinois Central Railroad. It was met with cheers and booming. It also had to get new springs for the car since several had broken on the uh, train tracks. <laughs> it was listed as a special locomotive for with an escort. Of course it was. Everything is going so great. The trip through Nebraska was fairly easy for the Thomas Flyer. The roads weren't nearly as muddy as they were states away and was making its way to Cheyenne, Wyoming, which was where Monty Roberts would finish driving and he would let someone else take the wheel. He was scheduled for uh, the French Grand Prix in May and he couldn't miss that. In total, Roberts had driven for 2,052 miles in the New York to Paris race. When the Thomas Flyer arrived after a good long rest and another banquet for the drivers, Roberts turned the wheel over to E. Lynn Mathewson, who would be the new driver until Ogden, Utah, wherein the driver would be done. The driving would be done by Harold Brinker. So, Mathewson is the new, new guy. Great, yeah. another Matthew fucking name to remember. Yeah, don't worry, they're gonna be quick. The Thomas Flyer had also gained other another member from the Cheyenne to Ogden leg race, a sports reporter by name of Charles Van Lone who had a reputation for really immersing himself with the, uh, immersing readers with the, uh, with the, with the competitors. Think of him sort of like, a an old timey version of a Hunter S. Thompson, if I had to pick one, <laughs> Shit. but more sports related. The Thomas Flyer had a clear lead with good progress. It would reach San Francisco to take a coastal ferry up to Seattle, where it would be loaded onto another ship that would be scheduled on April 1st to take all the racers to Valdez in Alaska. This was a problem for the other cars that were much far behind the Thomas because ships, they've got, they've got, they have schedules they go. and they keep. <laughs> Some of the teams asked the racing committee if they could ship the cars by train, but they weren't allowed to do that. 
Mm. Despite the clear lead, the Thomas Flyer wasn't moving anywhere because George Schuster had disappeared. He he disappeared for a moment because a sales manager said he didn't care if Schuster was on the Thomas Flot was in the Thomas Flyer or not. Ultimate because uh, he was just a mechanic to this guy. Businessmen only care about one thing, and that's business and profits. Schuster, he was part of the team, and the car was not going to move without him. And he allowed, the businessman said that Schuster could drive in Alaska and Siberia, mostly because this wouldn't affect Thomas Sales. While the names that they had used to get to drive across America, they were household names, so to speak. March 9th. The Zeus was out of Omaha with New Springs, and they're making progress. Unfortunately, though, depression and homesickness would take over a few of the men in the Zeus, which, that'll do it when yeah. you're driving for hours at a time. <laughs> yeah. The lack of sleep was also a major factor, since Sertori would drive for not 24 hours, like 35-plus hours without stopping. Somehow, the man just did not know how to sleep. That's... Mm-mm. Yeah, I know. No. Back in Iowa. Absolutely not. Back in Iowa, the Dedeon was still waiting for parts. Albeit it was still ahead of the Protoss and the Motoblock. And wasn't based on days or hours anymore. It was based on by state. Because, (laughs) I mean, the Protoss and the Motoblock were entering Iowa. The Dedeon was stuck in Iowa. The Zeus was crossing Nebraska. And the Thomas Flyer was leaving Cheyenne, Wyoming. Jesus. Uh And we're not even halfway through the damn race. The Protos, the Dedeon, and the Motoblock all jockeyed for third place while making it through Iowa, whoever was ahead based on road conditions, driving skill, and mechanical problems. March 12th, the Zeus team had managed to make it to Wyoming. They had, a once again, more car problems, because the car had fallen into a mud hole and needed a replacement shaft afterwards. <laughs> Things for the Motoblock team seemed to be getting better, but then went from bad, went from good to bad to worse. Remember when everything was stolen from the shed? Well, the sheriff of Kendallville finally began investigating after getting tired of papers saying Indiana was, you know... A bunch of dicks. A bunch of dicks. The sheriff and his man managed to find the stolen equipment behind a mill thanks to the culprit coming forward and showing where it was stashed. Since the motoblock was so far behind the Zeus and the Thomas Flyer, the race trail began to vanish... Which makes sense, like, where's the, where's the train, where's the, where's the, uh, tire marks? Also, not to mention, they had to deal with the gumbo of Iowa as well. <laughs> Did they run over any sausage or green onion? <laughs> After having the motoblock pulled out by a team of horses into the town of Carroll, there was a lot more repairs needed. Godard, captain of the motoblock team, had an even better idea. Ship the car to San Francisco by train! He didn't want to wait to see what was wrong with the car. He wanted to get yeah, through he wanted all this. To go. I want to go fast. But this was against the rules, and he had. But he had to get out of Iowa. Yeah. So on a stopover, the bo- the motoblock sat on a flatbed train awaiting transport. Flatbed train car. Yeah. Goddard and his team stood on both sides of the car, acting like guards, trying to keep people from touching it and taking photographs. Even trying to put a tarp on top of the thing. But, unfortunately, photos were taken, and Godard knew it was too late. The motoblock was out of the race. And now we're down to four teams. So two French teams are out of the way. Now it's just one French team, one German team. And we haven't even left the first country. 
We haven't even left the States. We're just making it through the Rockies, essentially. That's how far we're at right now. Back to Sancha Frey and the Dedion team. They arrived in Omaha. All of that time stopped in Iowa made very well for, made a very well-rested Shafrey who was ready to just get going. He didn't complain as much as he did before. Not far behind, Copen and the Protoss were entering Nebraska. They were actually stopped by the owner of the Omaha's largest brewing company. The owner gave mineral water, buttermilk, and shredded wheat biscuits to Copen as a gift. Just as like a good stand, like, here you go, you need supplies. Here are things for you. He was even for Copen at one point was actually gifted by the Bavarian by a Bavarian society, and I think one of the stopovers, a gigantic pretzel. Just thank you. He's like this. I will be sure to send it to home. Is what I think he said. And while they were stopped in Omaha, Copen actually took driving lessons from Snyder, which he should have been doing this entire damn time. But what do I know? <laughs> I see the look on your face. It's just, oh my god, that it's it's just the amount of crap that has gone wrong for these guys, and they haven't even left the United States yet. Yeah, I mean, just from New York City, yeah, to Times Square to Buffalo, just yeah. that section was just mm. nightmare fuel. Sancho Frey was driving at night when suddenly a dog appeared and tried to chase the daddy on. Sancho Frey jerked the wheel to avoid the dog and wound up in a ditch. He said he'd rather run into a ditch than hit a dog. So, bit of a good guy on I this understand. one. I and I respect that. Same, same. The car, was out of, the car was eventually pulled out of a ditch back on the road, but the going into the ditch had led to a knuckle joint cracking, thus disabling the drive shaft. They would be waiting another three days. March 20th, the day Dion has finally arrived in Cheyenne. March 21st, the Protos arrives in Cheyenne. These two cars are neck and neck in the back of the race. The Thomas was making its way, th had made it through Wyoming and was making its way through Utah and Nevada. With this terrain being a little more rough because we're in the Rockies. Yeah. When the Thomas Flyer got to the town of Carter, the team learned the roads were impassable due to 10 foot tall snowdrifts. To get around this, the Union Pacific designated the Thomas Flyer as a special train. Captain Hansen and George Miller had hopped a uh, passenger train ahead to Ogden, Utah, while Matthewson and Schuster stayed with the car. All this to help keep, I mean, you know, make room for a representative of the Union Pacific Railway to help guide the train on the tracks. Guide the car on the tracks, that yeah. is. While the Thomas Flyer rode the rails, it was nearly pancaked by an oncoming train, and it nearly got stuck in a train tunnel. I learned this why I learned this why though. There were no wooden there's no wooden rail ties in in these tunnels. It was just the rails directly on top of the stone. I didn't realize that. Well, this is probably just for this tunnel, could be for the other tunnels. But still, no rail ties. And soon the car was stuck in a snowbank in Utah. Miller hopped the train to go back and help him out, even literally leaping from the train when he spotted them. But after 24 hours, the Thomas Flyer was finally in Ogden, Utah. Here, Lynn Mathewson turned over the wheel to Harold Brinker. While they were in Ogden, Captain Hansen received a note from a secret admirer, complete with hotel and room number. Ooh, giggity. Ever the ladies' man, Hansen went up and knocked on the door. 
He heard a commotion and yelling and the sound of furniture being thrown, as if a couple arguing. Hansen promptly ran off. Inside, it was Mathewson and Van Loan, the sports journalist. They didn't much care for Captain Hansen and wanted to prank him, so they, they scared him and they later found him hidden away in the Thomas Flyer where he'd be for the rest of the night. We're going to go back to the Zeus team for a moment now. Leave everybody behind for a second. Go all the way back to wherever the Zeus... Were they, were they in Iowa? They were They were just... They were about two and a half days behind the Americans, so oh, maybe okay. they're reaching the... Bra- they're, they're through okay. Nebraska now at yeah, this point. Yeah. They're okay. making it through. It, it, there's a lot to cover, I know. I, I know. Yeah. I, that's my, I'm, I, I blame myself on this one. I really do. It's my fault. We need like a like an interactive map. I would have it if I did. Thing. Let's see. Uh, the Zeus got stuck in a bog and began to sink, so they had to get locals from a nearby town to with a good strong team of horses. The Zeus got a much needed bath when it went into when it got to town. We got two and a half days behind the American team now. It would soon come upon a ravine, nearly falling in. And but thanks to the quick thinking of Sir Tori, he drove with his driving. Everybody jumped out, the Zeus didn't fall in, and it was just on the edge of the ravine. Like, imagine that. (laughs) The car was back on the road, and it continued on. The Zeus team sent a telegram to the Union Pacific Railroad, asking to use the rails like the Thomas Flyer did. They were denied this due to being told that Thomas's tire chains had damaged the rail bed and sprayed gravel everywhere. The Zeus would have to cross over the mountains instead of through them. That sounds fun. In fact, if not mistaken, the Thomas Flyer was the only vehicle that had tire chains to help navigate the snow at the beginning of the help navigate the snow in the race. Everybody else didn't have it. Because they thought it would weigh them down too much. <laughs> tire ch- uh, tire chains are pretty helpful. Yeah, I'm sure they found that out immediately after leaving Times Square. Back to the Thomas Flyer. Everyone, minus Captain Hansen, was well-rested and ready to go. I mean, Hansen, he was stiff and groggy, having slept in the car. Which, I've never done that before, which, ever. No, which those huh. things aren't very comfortable looking. Like No. They're, ta- they're touring cars, but they are not, like... They're old touring cars. Yes. They were ready to make their way now to San Francisco. With late snows in the mountains, the route now went southwest through Nevada to Central California, then up to San Francisco. I'm not going to lie, I was very, I'm very geographically inept, so I kept thinking that San Francisco was <coughs> lower. Oh, yeah. I no. didn't realize you that were it thinking was. LA. I'm thinking San Diego. San yeah. Diego's down there. Yeah. San Francisco's in Northern California, which yeah. I didn't realize. I'm in, I very much, I will admit, I'm dumb when it comes Get to out that. your blue pen. God. Not the blue pens. Not the blue pen. The drive through Nevada wasn't without its issues. The transmission wound up breaking in the desert after Brinker put a little too much pedal to the metal. It stripped the transmission. Oh. They uh, traveled to a nearby ranch, Schuster did, where he rented a horse and a revolver for protection, then set up to Tonopah, Nevada. Yes, guns were also involved in this. When he got to Tonopah... <laughs> Schuster found the local Thomas dealer where he lived and asked for help. While the dealer didn't stock the parts to fix the transmission, he did have a different method. 
the dealer sent his mechanics to get parts from other Thomas Flyers in the area. Whether the whether the owners were home or not. So now we have a weird crime piece to add to all this. Jesus. This <laughs> Buffalo Bill Cody stealing parts in the middle of the night. What are we gonna else are gonna add to this mess? Everything was a matter of time because of that boat to Val to Valdez, Alaska was scheduled to leave March 26th. If they missed that window, making it across Alaska and the Bering Strait would prove to be more incredibly dangerous. While the Thomas Flyer had made it into Chicago, and, and not in Chicago, into California, way different country, all, place altogether, the Zeust was finally in Utah. <laughs> landing in Ogden... Mormon country. Landing in Ogden, Sartori said he wanted the Thomas Flyer to be penalized because the Americans had used the rails to get through the Rockies. Sartori knew the only way he would get this is if he... He would get his way is if he drove like an animal, which is what he did. Again, man didn't sleep. No. That was until the Zeus reached Kelton, Utah, where it broke, if not fell apart with its frame cracking. <laughs> the Zeus team abandoned the car to get a telegraph to get to a, a, a telegraph operator's station. Here, Sertori and Scarfolio argued with Sertori saying he wanted to leave because he was tired of all this bullshit. Ruland uh, had also come across a message from New York saying his wife was likely having an affair with another man. So there's that. That's going. fun. There's a lot going on too, but he didn't. He kept that quiet. The Thomas Flyer made its way through the Mo- through Mojave and received a telegram from E.L. Thomas. This is E.R. Thomas's um, son. They both have the same first name, so they were just known by their E.L.R. sort of situation, which pretty common back then. Yeah. Uh, apparently. Apparently, the Thomas Flyer was supposed to go through, was supposed to go to Daggett and then to Los Angeles. Schuster went against his boss's son's wishes and had Brinker turn the Flyer north to San Francisco. That window was not going to be missed. E.L. Thomas wound up hopping a train to try and intercept Schuster and convince him to go to L.A., which... Business-wise, was a, probably a means of, you know, showing the incredible might of the Thomas Flyer, as well yeah. as just like, hey, Los Angeles, it's a big city we're getting here. Let's have let's have it involved in the race somehow, too. Yep. That's, yeah, that's exactly what they were thinking. Which, which in a matter, which in a practical sense makes no sense. Ignoring more of E.L. Thomas's telegrams, the Thomas Flyer was finally in San Francisco on March 24th. E.L. did finally catch up to Schuster in San Francisco, but Schuster didn't care for whatever E.L. wanted. Instead, the Thomas Flyer was getting outfitted for icy cold travel up in Alaska and Siberia. E.L. wanted to have, um, you know, sleeping apartments put in, but Schuster said, no, we've got tents. Those are fine. We have tents. We're fine. We're good. Some weather and outdoors experts were, who were close to the race committee in Paris said that Alaska might not be the best for the race. And that, really? And that the cars should just go across the Atlantic by boat. This led to a very hot debate between uh, New York, Alaska, and Paris. Ultimately, it was decided that Alaska would continue being part of the race route. The Thomas Flyer was loaded onto a freighter for Seattle, and Schuster became the primary driver from here on even though Brinker was begging to continue driving. But Schuster, he said, no, this is mine. I want this. My car. It's my car. 
While the Thomas Flyer made its way to Seattle, the Zeus was heading into California, briefly getting lost in Death Valley. Which is where you don't want to be. As the name implies. Schuster continued to be pissy about... Be pissy about, um... The Americans taking the rails and the Zeus having to go around. It really only took them about a day to get through the mountains, even though he kept saying it was three days, it was six days. He was he was just a, not to sound stereotypical, but he was just a fiery Italian. Like a lot of hand gestures. A lot of yeah, they they are a very passionate people. Like that is a, that is a truth. Yeah, you hear that, Italy? You guys are passionate about stuff. It's true. Things. Charles Go <laughs> Charles Godard. <laughs> Charles Godard was also in LA. He was out of the race, but he was uh, there just enjoying himself. Sirtori had exploded when he learned that that Charles Godard was um, you know, disqualified because he felt that the American team was incredibly one-sided in favor of everybody else. After this, The Zeus managed to make it to San Francisco, but they missed the connection to get their car from San Francisco to Seattle. So they would have to wait for another ship to leave Seattle on April 6th, which was a 12-day delay. Oh. They had to book a coastal freighter to leave for Seattle on April 10th. Back to San Chafre and the Daddy on crew. Let's roll back a couple weeks to March. They wound up taking a long way over the uh, Uinta Range of the Rockies, which is... The more northern, like, yeah. uh, Utah area. Yeah, yeah. And uh, mostly because the guy they had was like, oh, let's go check all the mountains. So this is the quickest path. It's like, no, it's not. This guy. You don't know what you're talking about, boy. They got out of the Uinta Mountains near Evanston, Wyoming, and it got stuck in the mud. And as they did this, as they were trying to get the car unstuck, a couple of hobos had come upon the spectacle. Saint Chaffray had offered to pay them for help, but they just wanted the money, not the work. See, nobody wants to work, everybody. Jesus. All right, boomer. <laughs> the two hobos did try to steal a spare axle, which, <laughs> that was about 100 pounds, I'll just see that in mind. But the two could manage it if they both lifted it. Yeah. Uh, Lescars, the lawyer, he saw this and took out his revolver. The hobos put the spare axle down and then helped pull the dead on out. Saint-Chaffray still paid them before moving along with the race. This wouldn't be an end, though, for troubles in the de- for the Dédion, because it got lost and stopped in Death Valley. <laughs> what the fuck is happening in this race? <laughs> Saint-Chaffray and Autran, Monsieur Autran, got out to look for help. They came across a one-man camp where the man agreed to ride his burro to a telegraph station to send a message to the town of Rhyolite for help. A man from Rhyolite, by name of Frank Hartigan, volunteered to take his horse-drawn wagon out to help the Dedion. An hour later, the horses and wagon were riding back to their barn in Rhyolite. Frank Hartigan was not there. His friends searched for him, and they found his body on the side of the road, dead from a broken neck, likely from a fall. This would be the first death associated with the New York to Paris race. So, yeah. Another person, uh, another one of his friends volunteered, and they helped get the Dédion out. San Chaffray was determined to get to San Francisco. He knew he'd missed the first... They should have called it the Dédion after that. (laughs) The Dédion Valley. (laughs) Let's see, he would have to wait for April 10th, much like the... 
which would be the same ship the Zeus was leaving on. Yep. The Thomas Flyer was now in Alaska. It had been delayed for two days due to a coastal storm up there, but it finally made it. And Schuster had his questions. Would the trail be covered in snow or would it be a sloppy mess? While the team was Knowing docking... the way this race is going, it's going to be a sloppy mess. While the, while the American team was docking in Valdez, Alaska, the Zeus and Dedeon team waited for the next steamer. What about the Germans and the Protos? They were in Ogden, Utah. Again. They had brought the car to Ogden for repairs when it broke a, sh- broke a shaft in Rock Springs, but it would be sent back once repairs were finished. Kloppen wound up in Ogden a few more times, one instance due to him traveling by train to Nevada to see about the race route, since the snow was m- had melted on the original route that covered Sierra- the Sierra Nevada mountains. Kloppen landed in Tacoma, Nevada, inquired if anybody had seen a German car, but they had not, Thus, he had essentially lost his car, and he had to take a hand car to the town of Lucen, where he hopped the train back to Ogden. So it's just, he keeps going back and forth to Ogden. Eventually, Copen managed to get contact with his driver, who was at a ranch in Blue Creek. And apparently, the protos had broken down the day before Copen had just gotten back to Ogden, but it was repaired, and eventually the protos would be on a train back to Ogden to get back to driving. <laughs> Just when I thought I was out. They pulled him back in with two cracked cylinders. Snyder stayed with the car and Copen took a train to Seattle to get spare parts to fix the damn thing. Now we're back to California for a minute. The Zeus and Dedeon teams were slowly awaiting their steamer. And remember Goddard, the motoblock uh, driver? He got arrested for driving 50 miles an hour in a 10 mile an hour district. <laughs> April 8th, the Thomas Flyer was finally on Alaskan soil. Before driving the car up, Schuster was t- Schuster was taken in a single horse sleigh to inspect the trail that he'd be driving. Upon returning from the inspection, Schuster told the race committee that the only way to make it over Alaska would be to dismantle the Thomas Flyer and ship the parts by dog sled. Which sounds par for the course at this point. What form of transportation have they not had involved in this so far? Planes, but planes don't have won't exist for at least another year because the Wright brothers did nineteen oh nine. But minus flight, they're pretty much every I mean, other. Some t- of the fucking ditches they've run into, they took flight for a hot second. <laughs> The committee was informed about this, and it reluctantly agreed to a just course. They told the American team to return to Seattle on the 10th. At the same time, the Dedeon and Zeus teams were now making their way to Seattle. As for Copen, he was leaving Seattle and headed back to Ogden with the spare parts to fix the cracked cylinders. He'd also lost Snyder, who quit because he felt the Protoss was so far behind, it was practically out of the race. It was back to just Copen and the Protos. Once again. April 13th. While the Thomas Flyer was still at sea and headed to Seattle, the Zeus and Dedeon had finally made it to Seattle. While at dinner, saint Chaffray talked about his plans to navigate the wilds of Alaska when a telegram from Le Matin arrived and told the racers the route had changed and they would have to take a ship as soon as possible to Vladivostok, 
a Russian port just north of Korea. The two teams quickly got their items packed and their cars back on the road. Back in Ogden. Here we go again. <laughs> back at the ranch. Back in Ogden. <laughs> Copen Meanwhile. Copen slept soundly, unaware of the news until the next day. He received frantic telegrams from Sancha Frey, who was the one who had helped plot the original course in the first place, which included Alaska, now informing Copen of the changes to just go to Vladivostok. Copen replied he would need the protos to take the rails just to make it in time to cross the Pacific, but it was against the wall, against the rules. Sanchafre, fucking hell with these Man, names. Good work with that. I did myself on this one. I know I did. I'm I'm myself to blame. I'm my own worst enemy. He told Copen to ignore the rules and get that car on the trains. Just go. Copen did just that. He figured he would be disqualified, but he had to get the protos to Paris. Kaiser Wilhelm II was watching the race. While the Protoss usually looked proud on that flat on the flatbed, it looked more like a scrap of iron at this point. I was gonna at this point, they have replaced so many things on all these cars. If they showed up in entirely different cars, I wouldn't have been shocked. It's like the ship of Theseus. Is, that a, Mar- is that a Martin Flyer? Was. What is it now? <laughs> yep. It's yep. a Thomas driver. It's like a damn. It's like the damn ship of Theseus. Like, if you yeah. replace all the parts, is it still the same? Is it still the same, or is it new? Like, yeah. Whole thing. With the new plan in motion, the Zeus and Dadion loaded their cars onto, onto the Akimaru on April 14th. Emilio Sotori missed this ship because he just felt a nervous strain combined with physical exhaustion and that he just couldn't continue the race. But after some internal searching... He told Scarfolio he'd meet the Zeus team in Vladivostok. Copen loaded up his broken Protoss onto a ship called the Glen Logan on April 19th and sailed alone. The Thomas Flyer could have boarded the Glen Logan, but they didn't have their Russian visas in order, so they had to wait. Luckily, Schuster found another ship, and on April 21st, the Thomas Flyer was loaded onto the Shamut, which was bound for Japan. The car that had led that had the lead since the start, was now in last place. But we're finally out of the United States. It took them over two months. And it took us over an hour. An hour and 41 minutes at this point. Oh my god. Yeah, I said it would be a long one, Tony. I And we're only on page 40 of my notes. I... Yeah. For three... They can't have any more any more problems like we don't have enough notes like I'm, they they go through smoothly at this point right Everything i'm not gonna lie smoothly. i'm not gonna lie i did hurry it i did hurry it along with near the end so we're gonna kind of just like dog ear a lot of this from here on for three weeks the racers had a break from the race as did the rest of the world because ships they're gonna they're not fast what finally on may 2nd the akimaru docked in yokohama japan here, the Davion and Zeus were unloaded, and soon the race was back in action, with the two teams driving to the west coast of Japan to hop another ship into the port of Suraga to get to Russia. The only thing stopping the teams from going was a little bit of bureaucracy. In Japan, no. It makes me think of that Shin Godzilla movie where they're legitimately having a meeting about a meeting about a meeting to what to deal with the giant radioactive yeah. lizard. 
just the bureaucracy. Yeah. The teams needed to sign special papers and permits to allow oh them to God. travel in Japan. This process would take five days. Unfortunately for Saint-Chaffray, during the five-day delay, he received a message from the Marquis de Dion that they were withdrawing the car out of the race due to the new route through southern Siberia being far too similar to the 1907 race. It's also likely that the Marquis de Dion was tired of spending money on the efforts of the race. Probably. Whatever I would be at this point. <laughs> Whatever the case. I would have given up in Nebraska. The fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the case, the Dedeon team was out of the race. I now find it ironic that the three French teams all wound up dropping out of the race when one of the sponsors is a French newspaper and the destination's Paris. Not ironic. Yeah. The Zeust was now on its own, ahead of the Thomas Flyer and the Protos. Driving through Japan was no easy task because while the distance to the port of Suruga was about 200 miles, it would feel about 600 miles due to the mountain range to cross as well as winding through countless rice fields. Not to mention, the Japanese roads at the time were not very good. Not really good for horses, so you can only imagine cars on these quote-unquote roads. One of them has chains on their tires. Yeah, and they haven't even gotten to Japan yet. Plus, many Japanese villages were all, also had narrow streets and low mm -hmm. overhangs. I want you to picture a street that is eight feet wide and six feet tall. Like, I want you to imagine that much of a gap. So what you're saying is Japan's not going to go well either. It's going to be tough. As the Zeus was about to leave, the Dedeon team had managed to get plenty of money. The Sanchafre, he probably asked somebody else, and a few of the other t uh, members on the team, they actually were living comfortably. They weren't... They weren't paupers. They weren't peasants. They had money. The Dedeon team decided they wanted to continue west with the Zeus team. The two cars made their way through central Japan dealing with the hot and sunny conditions, which allowed for quite a lot of vegetation and greenery to be blooming and large. The cars also had to climb Mount Fuji for only about eight miles because we're familiar with, we're familiar with what Mount Fuji looks like. Flat, very, very sleek Why? looking. Why? They've was... had nightmares all the way up until this point. Why would you make them do Mount Fuji now? Because they're going to do it anyway. But the thing is, Mount Fuji does have some steep and harsh inclines, not to mention it's a volcano, so it's going to get pretty warm up there. With the help of locals, the team was able to get their cars back on the path, even pulled by a rope several times. After five grueling days, the Zeus and Dedeon teams finally reached Suruga. While this was going on, the race committee had made a decision. The Thomas Flyer was granted a 15-day allowance due to having been lost during the detour to Alaska. This meant that even if the Dedeon and Zeus cars got to Paris first, they would still lose to the De they would still lose to the Thomas Flyer. The committee also said that Koppen and the Protos would be penalized 15 days for using the train from Ogden to Seattle. Americans wanted Koppen disqualified. 
but the committee said that there must have been a genuine confusion about shipping the car. Either way, this meant if Koppen got to Paris first, he would still lose to the Thomas Flyer by a month. Koppen felt he did nothing wrong, given that it was Saint-Chaffray who had told him to take the rails. Like, that's, that's still a weird thing to me. Like, you land, like, say you get there first, but it's like you have to wait a solid month and hope that the guy who was given, who was given the, the allowance doesn't, doesn't reach you in time. I just, That's a month of waiting. I can't imagine. Wow. The logistics of all of that, just being like, how, how far is the guy behind me? A month. That's not, that's. Second place? Yeah, absolutely. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Copen was informed of this, as obviously. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of Copen, thanks to a very close relationship between Germany and Russia, he didn't need to stop in Japan. He took the Glenn mm-hmm. Logan all the way to Vladivostok. Yep. The American team wasn't so lucky. They needed approval to enter Russia and thus needed to visit the Russian consular offices and receive Russian visas. Um, shocker, Americans having a tough time getting into Russia. The tale as old as time. 1908 or 2024? 19... Okay. <laughs> good point, good point. It should be mentioned that relations between Japan and the U.S. were not very good either, with a power struggle over the Pacific being the main issue. Mm-hmm. So, that's major point of contention there. Basically, we were good until we got out of the U.S., and then it got a little squirrely yeah, for us. It's going to get squirrely for a little bit more here. The Thomas Flyer crew briefly landed in Yokohama for a brief stop, learning from guests at a European hotel that bets were being made that the Thomas Flyer wouldn't make it to Paris. They quickly got back on board and sailed to Kobe, which was 90 miles away from Suruga. I had to do a some like, like Googling on where these were located, and I saw where Kobe was and where Suruga was. And it's like, legitimately, you know where that really thin part of Japan is near the south? Yeah. That's ninety. That that little that little stretch right there, but here's the problem with it though. That little that little ninety mile stretch. There were no qualified guides to be found, and there were no route maps. So here we go again. Good luck. Luckily, Schuster had met a man only named Mancini, who said he knew the way to Kyoto, but he wasn't sure how to get to Suruga. So if you can get to Kyoto, maybe you can find a way to. From Kyoto to Suruga. I don't know. Bridges would also prove to be a problem because they were made of bamboo, and the sturdiest could hold only about 2,000 pounds. And for our listeners that have fallen asleep and have just now woken up, the cars weigh 7,000 pounds, roughly. Well, that was the big one. That was the, big, yeah, that was like the, the biggest one. The, 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 this one, I think the, I think the, the Thomas Flyer weighs about, like about at least twice that, I think. Maybe a little. It's not it's not the heaviest, but it's not the lightest. Yeah, but still, it's not great. No. With bamboo bridging. They tried to go over one bridge, but Schuster decided to take the Thomas Flyer a different to a different crossing. The rest of his crew had to ask the growing number of carts that and wagons that were gathering behind them to turn. To, to allow the vehicle yep, to move. To move. This took nearly an hour, but eventually the car could be backed up and they came across another bridge. And Schuster made the decision to cross this one after the entire crew inspected the bridge's structure. It was about a 20-foot drop, too, from the bridge. So just mention that right now. Minus Schuster, 
the rest of the crew grabbed several heavy items from the car and carried them across the bridge. It was now just Schuster and the car. He hit the gas, and the car rolled along the bridge. With the and then Waylon Jennings started playing, and he gassed it. With the occasional crack in the bamboo being heard. Schuster didn't stop, because if you stop on this, it's going to for nope. sure crack. Soon, he was on the other side of the bridge. He, with a puckered butthole. And he gleefully shouted, All aboard to Paris! Everyone piled back in with all their stuff off. Yeah. Mind you. After stopping in a town that was 25 miles away from Suruga, Schuster learned that the road to Suruga was not wide enough. They would have to take another 80-mile-long route, which included climbing up a steep mountain. Thankfully, with the help of 50 peasant laborers, the Thomas Flyer climbed the mountain, and when it went down the mountain, Schuster kept a cool head and managed to get the car to stop. Once again, wrestling the mechanical beast just to... Yeah, just to Not get or just down to the maintain mountain. control. They soon made their way to Suruga, but the Zeus and Dedion were already on the water, headed to Vladivostok. Now, it should be no surprise that the first competitor to reach Vladivostok was Kolpen and the Protos. The car was rolled out as best as it could on its four flat tires, and then put on a put into a government warehouse to be cleared for entry in Russia. In the meantime, Kolpen took a horse-drawn carriage into town. His appearance had changed since he'd gotten on the ship. He'd, yeah. he'd grown a beard, his hair was long, and he was also dressed in leather coveralls. So he'd looked... So he didn't look as this spick-and-span spick officer. He very much looked more like a caveman. I mean, you know, six months traveling around the world in a fucking car from 1907. Yeah. Might do it to you. In the mean, let's see. When he reached when he reached a German hotel that was set up there in Vladivostok, he was met by two men who asked if he was Kopen and said they would be the new drivers for the Protos. Kopen said he was the man they were looking for, but as I said, they were expecting a man in a uniform, mm -hmm. not a caveman. Soon after, he went to a local barber and got himself well-groomed. These two new members were Casper Neuberger and Robert Fuchs. Neuberger was a Bavarian burly, was a Bavarian who was burly with slicked back hair. Fuchs was from Berlin, young and agile, and he sported a refined curled mustache. Both men were senior mechanics from the Protoss factory, so they quickly got to work fixing the Protoss up for the next leg of the race. While that was going on... left of the Protoss at this point. Yeah. While that was going on, Kopen spoke with the governor of Russia's maritime province. He was told Russia was essentially roadless and that the spring thaw would make it nearly impossible with, with muddy conditions. Oh, no big deal. Yeah. While Kopen took a little rest in Vladivostok, on May 15th, a ship called the Long Moon had docked. Disembarking were Scarfolio, Haga, saint Chafre, Adron, and Lascars. Yeah, I don't know who that is anymore. This the is names the... have all, literally all the names I, th I think have changed. The Zeus and the Dedeon team. Okay. That they they had both the Zeus teams and the You're Zedian teams. words and yes. names that I don't. Yeah, I I was alternating a lot of this. Uh, Saint Chaffre, the le the leader of the Dedion team, made his way to his hotel where he received a telegram from Marquis Dedion. The Marquis had sold the Dedion and it was in possession of its new owner before Saint Chaffre could give it a final goodbye. Yeah, it was given to a it was given to a man in China. When Scarfolio and Haga made it to the same hotel as San Chaffre, they were greeted by Sir Tori, who was back to his robust self. The, or the one of the, dri the mechanic and driver of um, the Zeus. 
He was told, unfortunately, he was also given a telegram that told him to report back to the Zeus factory. It had felt that since the American team was given the allowance of 15 days, it might just be best to pull out of the race, but Satori said he wanted to continue driving. May 18th. The SS Mongolia docked in Vladivostok, and the Thomas Flyer was unloaded. Good thing they had, good thing they had Captain Hansen, because he could speak Russian. Now... <laughs> In all the other languages. Now all remaining cars were in the same location for the first time in months, since the start of the race. There was an agreement that drivers would wait for each other, no jumping the gun, and May 20th would be the day. But there was a problem with the Thomas Flyer. Gasoline. There were, without any special arrangements, gasoline was nearly non-existent in Siberia. It was, it's that, just barren out there. In this er at yeah, this time, it, yeah, it's it's Russia in the nineteen aughts, especially it's southern a little Sib desolate, especially southern Siberia. There were gasoline arrangements set for northern Siberia, but that was scrapped, and the race committee didn't think to send everything south. Shocker. Copen had his own secure had secured his own supply of barrels to be shipped ahead. Schuster wasn't able to find any gas until he received a letter from Saint-Chaffray. Schuster arrived at saint Chaffray's room, and they found the Zeus team there as well. Chaffray said he had a supply of gasoline in Yokohama, but would only give it to the car that would take him to Paris. The reason that saint Chaffray didn't ask Copen was it would not have looked well for a Frenchman to ride in a German vehicle. So, tensions are a little high in certain countries. A little bit. The Italians didn't take to this. They yelled at saint Chaffray and stormed out. Schuster said he would think it over, but in private with um, McAdam, the the uh, reporter, he said that he would not allow Saint-Chaffray to bully his way to Paris. So that was also a no from Schuster. Copen, ever the fair sporting gentleman, agreed to delay the start of the race to allow Schuster to find gas. Schuster searched up and down the docks, asking if boats had any extra gas to spare, before coming upon a department store where they had some extra gasoline in the back. Schuster bought as much as he could. saint Chaffray knocked on Schuster's door the next morning, and Schuster said, no, not happening. And that was it. Fuck you. saint Chaffray gave the rights to his gasoline to the Zeus team before he hopped onto the Trans-Siberian Railway back to Paris. May 22nd, the morning air was warm and crisp, free of rain, but the sun still had, you know, dark clouds, and the ground was damp. The Protoss was at the town square first, waiting for um, the Thomas Flyer, my brain shut off, to get there. The Protoss had looked a little dented and had names of cities and towns on it, but it was running better than it had before. So a little bit of graffiti on the sides, nothing fancy. No big deal. Schuster was, fitting, was finishing up his preparations before meeting the Protoss when he was ordered not to engage with the Protoss as the, as the Thomas execs felt... Uh, the proto should be a non-entry after it received that 15-day penalty. It's like they thought, oh, there's no point in, you know, rate, you know, treating him as a competitor. You're going to win anyway. Schuster was not, Schuster didn't want that. Yeah. He wanted a competitor, and the Protoss and, the, and Copen were the, or the competition. He needed that. Otherwise, he wouldn't race. As they were getting ready to go, the engine revved, but the clutch, sl but the clutch slipped, and the car could barely crawl. So, Copen was alerted of this, and he he told his driver, get going, I'm tired of waiting. So, no more sportsmanship. It is a race to the finish. A mile and a half of good road later, the Protoss went into a brook. 
Some of the locals got planks out and made a temporary bridge to get the protos out of the water. What road they had was narrow with thick forests surrounding it and the branches overhanging. Top it off, there were also bogs to contend with, which the protos got stuck in several times. The Thomas Flyer was soon rumbling by, passing the struggling car. Schuster, didn't, Schuster almost didn't stop to help the struggling Germans until Captain Hansen said, let's help them. With some rope tied between both cars, the Thomas Flyer managed to pull the German car out of the mud. After a bottle of celebratory champagne was passed around as a thank you, the racers were back on. The race was back on, with the Thomas Flyer taking the lead. The lead wouldn't be too long, though, because the Thomas Flyer found itself also in a bog. But this time, the Protoss did not come to repay the efforts because it had taken a different route. Captain Hansen got out of the car and decided to walk for help, but it got too dark. He returned shortly after with 40 soldiers. 40 soldiers. They had, they had a garrison not too far away from where the Thomas Flyer was stuck. And they offered lodgings for the guys, for the team, because there were some nomadic groups in Siberia that had taken to a life of marauding, marauding and thievery. So, yeah. Some, uh, nothing like some, uh, bandits at night. The Thomas Flyer now made it to the town of Nikolsk. Beside and ahead of them was a Trans-Siberian Railway, which was on a 15-foot embankment. The Thomas Flyer tried to move forward and not be on the rails, but it started to sink when the land was actually mostly water, as it turned out. Oh my god. After some Chinese farmers were asked to help out, the Thomas Flyer was out of the water, and back in Nikolsk they were. Schuster learned that the Protoss had been through and was using the railroad tracks. They had no other option, apparently. Copen was given permission to use the tracks, which made an easier trip, if not slightly. But the thing is, these rails took a lot of concentration and strength. The right side, of the right side tires, they were on the outside of the rails, while the left was inside the, was inside the rails. So, and the railroad ties... They weren't very far out, so there was a lot of room for error. So there was room, there was little room for error. So you had to be be careful. Yeah. In fact, the pressure was so intense on driving, Fuchs and Newberger would trade the driver's seat every ten to fifteen minutes. The news definitely hit Schuster hard. The Thomas Flyer had been in front for so long, he had to beat the Protos. The Thomas Flyer was prepped for the tracks, and soon it gave pursuit to the German car. After some driving and nearly being pancaked by an oncoming freight train. Again. Yes. Which actually happened quite often. They would have to hop off the track several times. Jeez. The Thomas Flyer had made it to a town called Pogranichnaya. Here, the here Schuster learned the Protoss was a good 60 miles away. For a good week, and then for, about for a solid week, no one had heard from either the Protoss or the Thomas Flyer teams, which was cause for concern. What about the Italians and the Zeust? Well, May 28th, Sirtori begrudgingly obeyed orders to return to the Zeust factory. Sirtori, you know, was heartbroken by this, but he had to. Scarfolio and Haga needed money for the remainder of the trip, and they were hoping to force the Zeust factory to re-establish support. After writing some melodramatic news articles to his father's paper, Scarfolio finally got his answer. 
The Zeus officials would pay for half the expenses, while the other half would be paid by a Russian noble named Baron Edward Scheinvogel, who would meet the team in Irkutsk, where then the drive for the rest of the then would drive for the rest to Paris. Scarfolio had no choice but to go along with the request. And on on June 5th, the Zeus was back in the race as it left Vladivostok. Also, June 5th. Yeah, there's a lot going on. The New York Times finally heard from the Thomas Flyer crew. Schuster had abandoned the tracks before because he was afraid of being obliterated by oncoming trains, which that's a very good reason why. He said <laughs> yeah. he said he was also willing to take the mud over being flattened by trains. But later that same day, he was back on the train tracks once again. Russian mud is nothing is no joke. No. Because it's frozen, too. Yeah, while on the tracks, a terrible clap filled the air, and turns out a the transmission casing had broken open because a driving pinion had detached and cut through the transmission case. So now they were stranded with a damaged vehicle on the train tracks. All, all the men lifted the car off the tracks and carefully put it into the embankment, one tire at a time. Schuster and McAdams walked back to Pogranichnaya, which was a good fifteen-minute hike, and that's I've walked I've I've walked some distance before like that. It's yeah. it's it's a it's a trek. It's it's mm -hmm. it's it's a few hours out of the way. It's a few hours that's gonna suck. <sighs> the language barrier proved difficult when Schuster tried to talk to Russian railway officials, but as luck would have it, Lemetine had a man in Russia to cover the race, Felix Neuville. The man spoke all the languages of the region he was in, as well as helped the racers negotiate the Russian. Russia's cavernous bureaucracy. What? Russian bureaucracy? Yeah. That's worse than Japanese bureaucracy. Oy. Uh -oh. Which is equally as bad as American bureaucracy. Schuster and Neuville talked. Uh, McAdams was on a supply run for food, which was no easy task, because bread was inevitable, prepared food made foreigners sick, and hard-boiled eggs were the only thing that American team could really eat. So it's yeah, kind of rough, yeah. At what point did this episode become torture for these, for the, like... Uh, my sanity started to die around here, too, because things okay. kept getting worse. The railway officials had two Chinese laborers give McAdams a ride on a handcar back to the Thomas Flyer, where Hansen and Miller were happy to see McAdams and his crates of food. Schuster was still in Pogranayevich, Pogranaya. The others have set up a camp, but would have to have one person keep watch at night all times because of the marauders. McAdams was first night. Uh, he heard footsteps approaching, which belonged to two Russian soldiers who came by to put out the fire that they'd set up at the camp because it might also attract marauders. Schuster went with a... Schuster hopped on a train with Newville where they headed to Harbin, where he had some emergency parts that were sent just weeks before. He found his crate, even asking to send a new transmission... And then it'd be about, that wouldn't take about two and a half weeks. So Schuster got what he needed, got back to the Thomas Flyer, and it was back on the tracks. Things have, would have gotten better for the men at the makeshift campsite. They could have gotten better, though. Um, storms had come in, and so all of them were drenched with rain and hail. So they're having, they're having a fun time. With that, oh the Thomas, God. after five days had passed, the Thomas Flyer was back on the move. At every train station he stopped at, Culpin kept asking the if the Thomas Flyer on its status. He planned to reach the city of Chita first because the Trans-Siberian Railway had offered up a $1,000 prize to the car that reached Chita first. 
<laughs> yeah. Copen as as Copen made his way to Cheetah, he was also given a telegram from the railroad from the railway company that forbade him from using the tracks anymore. Schuster also got the same message. Schuster was not going to stop while Copen kept going, and Copen would not let Schuster get in front of him. It was a whole com- competition at the wazoo. So here. unbeatable or un unmovable object, unstoppable force sort of situation with those two. I'm not going to stop if you're not going to stop. I'm not going to stop if you're not going to stop. And then they're both dead, just still driving. Yeah. The Protoss climbed a steep hill and came to a ravine, another ravine, with a wooden bridge across the gap. But this one's going to be even crazier, Tony. Um, N- what? 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 Newberger- what? Were there piranhas involved now? Somehow? No. Newberger carefully drove the Protoss on the bridge until halfway across there was a loud cracking noise. Instead of stopping as he intended, Newberger hit the accelerator and the Protoss lurched forward to the other side of the ravine. When they got out to check what had happened, the bridge had disappeared as they'd driven over it. Okay. <laughs> just I can, it makes me think of that part in cartoons where it's like the bridge is deteriorating behind and him as they're running. <laughs> as they're falling just on the boards. Yeah, I can see that. I'm just like, oh my god. Uh, so yeah, no bridge. That's just a... Uh, that's fantastic. They're like, oh, it was like that when we got here, and they... They, they kept on driving. Schuster and Neuville were meeting with General Horvath, the commander of the 1st Russian Army. Now we're talking military guys here. They discussed the usage of the railway. Horvath was having none of it since the, tra- since the cars on the train tracks had created delays for freight and mail trains. This was one of the first times that Russia was being efficient and they were enjoying it. Neuville tried bringing up Grand Duke's Newville tried bringing up Grand Duke Sergei Mikhailovich in the conversation. Mikhailovich was cousin to Tsar Nicholas II, as well as General of Artillery, Chairman of the Russian Theatrical Society, as well as a member of the Russian Committee overseeing the New York to Paris race. So, this guy... So, we're bringing some royalty into this mess. Despite this, the prohibition of using the rails would continue, and Schuster and Copen would have to use the poorly maintained roads. While at a stop, Kopin was pulled aside by a Russian official who told him that Mikhailovich gave orders for the train he was on to stop should they see either of the race cars. The Grand Duke wanted to see them for himself. So now we're dealing with Russian royalty, as I mentioned. This is going to be fun. Kopin knew he needed to meet the Grand Duke to plead his case for using the rails, so he decided to wait in Harbin to meet the Grand Duke. But the day the train was supposed to arrive, the Protoss was being worked on for a small repair 15 miles away in a small village. Copen didn't miss his, did not want to miss his chance, so he got a couple of horses from the village mayor. He rode out to Harbin, where he, and he also told Newberger and Fuchs, once repairs are done, follow. Like, get to, get to Harbin. Arriving in Harbin, Copen was able to meet the Grand Duke, who rode with Copen back to the Sea of the Protoss. General Horvath was also there with the Grand Duke and decided to see the car for himself as well. When the men reached the Protoss, it was stuck in a swamp. And in in obvious royal fashion, the Grand Duke was, Oh my goodness, how could this have happened? <laughs> Copen wished aloud that the racers be permitted to use the rails so as to avoid such mishaps like this. Like, I can truly... Oh, I wish we could use the, the, the rail tracks and not have to deal with such mishaps like this, sir. Please. Oh, my God. 
God. The Grand Duke gave permission, but there was one caveat. The cars would have to make room for a railroad official to join their team to alert where the cars were on the railroad. And in also, the cars would be held at stations until the along the entire way until in between each station was clear. So station, drive, station, drive. That would take forever. This proved to be annoying, leading to the Protoss and Thomas Flyer using the tracks less. After dealing with more rough terrain, a few repairs, and some bandits looking to steal from the Protoss, Copen finally reached Cheetah, where he claimed $1,000. The Thomas Flyer was a good three days away when the Protoss reached Cheetah. After a brief delay, the Thomas Flyer was also finally in Cheetah, and was now two days behind the Protoss. After a six-hour wait of gasoline... Schuster couldn't stop driving the Thomas Flyer for a 55-hour run. Very brief stops. He had given into exhaustion a few times when they stopped for food, falling asleep with food in his hands. Schuster was not going to give up, man. 55 hours. 55 hours. Straight. Straight. Through Siberia. With like five-second power naps, apparently. Yep. June 19th. The Thomas Flyer reaches the town, the twin towns of Verk, Verkne Undisk. Yeah, I hate myself for learning these names. A few, ah. day, a few <laughs> days later in Misawoya, the Thomas Flyer finally caught up with the Protoss, but not for long. It was being boarded onto a flat car ready to go to Tan Choi. Copen promised he would wait in Irkutsk for the Thomas Flyer as he boarded the train. And when I was reading that, I was like, that seems like something right at like the end of an episode. It's like, I'll, I'll wait for you in Irkutsk. Like, that seems like a yeah. the, the villain, just like middle finger. I'll wait for you there. The, the oh, Zeus sure. was bringing up the rear and having its own adventures, staying off the tracks to feel as though they'd had an honest run. They'd got stuck in the same water where the Thomas Flyer had earlier near Nikolsk. And they managed to get the Zeus out and soon decided that the train tracks maybe weren't such a bad idea. So they, they did that. They wouldn't stay on the train tracks for long, but just enough to get just enough to help them make their way to Paris. Yeah. June 21st, Copen and the Protoss arrive in Irkutsk. Here's where I start to kind of just um, quickly things. Power through. <laughs> yeah. The Thomas Flyer arrived not long after, but didn't stick around at Irkutsk for long. Schuster was getting impatient and wanted to beat the Germans. A few days later, a few days after leaving Irkutsk, Miller finally convinced Schuster to take a break and let him take over for a while. This allowed some rejuvenation in the Thomas Flyer team. More getting stuck in terrain issues as well as mechanical problems were spelled out for the Thomas Flyer. Schuster and Captain Hansen got into a bit of a big enough argument that Hansen decided he wanted to go see his family, so hopped the train, went to Siberia to see his family up in Tomsk. McAdam also left because the crazy driving was beginning to upset his stomach, so it was not his thing. <laughs> I'm getting car sick, man. I gotta go. <laughs> At one point, Schuster got lost while he was driving, and he sent a telegram to the Thomas factory telling them what happened. They replied back, Do you want us to send Montague Roberts to help you when you get on the good roads of Europe? Like, thinking he wasn't good enough. It's like, well... Schuster responded... Schuster responded when he got to a telegram office at Obansk. July 9th. Arrived today. Expect to reach Paris July 24th. Schuster. He was Damn. he was determined to get to Paris in time, but he'd be wrong. Of course. Meanwhile, after a few more mechanical mishaps of its own, the Protoss managed to make it to St. Petersburg, where Copen received another $1,000 prize 
as well as getting a medal that the Tsar himself had contributed. Nice. So we now got this trinket from the Romanovs. That's quite the thing. Yes. Schuster kept getting lost due to Russians not knowing hand signals and the Americans not speaking Russian. No translators since, you know, Captain Hansen was gone for a little bit. The Thomas Flyer was finally on the right track on July 20th, making it after they made it to Nizhny Novgorod. I'm really learning my Russian tonight. Repairs were made in Moscow and the Thomas Flyer was moving again. Captain Hansen also joined joined up in Moscow and was like, hey, I'm back, ready to go. Copen had left Russia and was finally back in Europe where he arrived, when he arrived in Berlin, he was met with quite the welcome party since that, that should be no surprise. Right. In fact, apparently like his mother decided to stay home because it was such a major event and his dad was inside the factory that they were uh, staying, that they yeah. were going to be meeting at. Yeah. Schuster wasn't too far behind, just reaching the border of Russia and the rest of Europe. Soon, the Thomas Flyer was in Prussian territory in Konigsberg, now called Kaliningrad. Russia took over that section, yeah. where they had radiator issues due to the warm July weather. So, that's fun. <laughs> Schuster sent no reports. He'd said to hell with it and wanted the race to finish. On July 26th, the Protos slowed to a stop in Paris at the offices of Le Matin. The Germans had reached Paris first albeit to a lukewarm celebration. Because, yeah, that was politically a great time to do that. Well, it's also, he was technically not the winner. Yeah. But still. Schuster knew this, and he knew that he would still win the race, thanks to the allowance of that, you know, 15 days, as well as the 15 days that were penalty that were penalized against the Germans. But for his own morale, Schuster had lost the race from Vladivostok to Paris. So that's kind of, it's that, you know, honor system sort of situation. Yeah. But finally, July 30th, the Thomas Flyer made it to Paris. Thus, by a technicality of 26 days ahead, George Schuster won the first race around the world. He was also the only member of the American team from beginning to end to complete the race. He holds that distinguished what record. What a freaking odyssey. Uh-huh. The celebration was cut short. It's going to get... The celebration was cut short for a moment when a police officer came up to arrest Schuster for having no headlights on his car. They'd fallen off a while back. It was against the rules of the time. The car had to have headlights on the Paris streets at night, otherwise, you know, get arrested. A bystander saw this and offered up his bicycle with a light on the front. They put the whole bike in the car right next to Schuster, and that stopped the officer from arresting him. As for the Zeust, it arrived in Paris in September of 1908. Two months, hang on, yeah, two months later, two months later, the damn, the, 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 the Zeust finally made it. After all was said and done, all the major players who were in this, they went about their lives and back to some obscurity. Scarfolio of the Zeus team went back to being a journalist, even writing a book about his own uh, experiences during the race. He would pass away in the 1960s. Culpin published his own memoir in the fall of 1908. He was promoted to captain and soon after married. He served in World War I, remained with the army and survived that 
remained in the army until retiring from a from the rank of major with the rank of major general in 1944 and then he nice. passed away in 1948 monty roberts settled down to a quiet family life in new jersey maintaining his uh maintaining being an engineer he would still get arrested for speeding penalties on the occasion i mean he's a racer <laughs> by heart yeah he would eventually um, die in 1957. Schuster would outlive everyone else. After the Thomas Company fell through, because, you know, Ford and all these other companies yeah, um, yeah. were creating more affordable vehicles at the time, Schuster owned a Dodge dealership in the 1920s and 30s before he became a machinist near the, you know, for the good portion of the end of his time in New York, in a New York factory. He became a bit of a celebrity and national treasure in the 1960s when he would make television appearances to talk about his involvement in the race. And he eventually died at the age of, ni of 98 in 1973. He lived, he lived a good, long life. Which, that wouldn't surprise me that he would be on these TV shows in the 1960s. Oh, yeah. It makes me think of, a, there was like a, you know, what's what's my secret or whatever. I've got a secret. Yeah, this? I've got a secret, yeah. And it's this older gentleman, like he's, you know, almost a century, almost, you know, almost 100 years old. And his secret was that he was there when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise me that there were these people who had these stories back then that yeah. they wanted to show on, uh, on national on television. television. Yeah. It was something else. Schuster would eventually be inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame on October 12, 2010. As for the winning car itself, the Thomas Flyer now has a residency at the National Automobile Museum in Reno, Nevada. The, the 1908 race showed, along as well as the 1907 race, that the automobile could and be highly reliable. I mean, how many transmissions did they go through? <laughs> they went through a lot, but the thing is, it was the it was the it was the spirit of adventure that finally got people yeah, to go. It was the grand tour, yes. Which ultimately, this is where we led to all the different vehicles we have nowadays, as yep. well as all the paved roads that we take granted for. Although here in Oklahoma, the roads are they'll eat mm, your tires up. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think that they probably would rather take in the gumbo over some of our roads. Yeah, I would. The Thomas Company, as I mentioned earlier, it, you know, yeah, it, it closed apart. up sh closed up shop yeah. in like 1918, 1919. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those companies, motorcycles too. Like America had over a hundred motorcycle manufacturers at one point. Yeah, and then just yeah, it's like all, like the Thomas didn't exist. Yeah. Protos, it fell through in the nineteen twenties. Yeah. A lot of these, a lot of these yeah. companies, they no longer exist. Just in name. Yeah. No, just in name and only partial legacy. Now, the only way that I knew about this race in the first place was because of an old movie I watched when I was in college. A 1965 movie that I have told you before yep. called The Great Race. Yep. This starred Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis as rival daredevils at the turn of the century with Natalie Wood as a fiery suffragist reporter and Peter Falk as loyal henchman Max. And it's a fun movie. I really do recommend it. Yeah. If you like that, if you like 
slapstick comedy and as well as, you know, some Looney Tunes-esque um, antics, which... Goofiness. Which yeah. also inspired the Wacky Races TV yeah. show. I think, honestly. I'm... God, I, that was a freaking haul of a I told a you I told you that this would be a massive recording. I said that it would be we're I'm from what I'm looking at right now on the feed, it is we have not even accounting for edits yet. Two hours and twenty five minutes going on right so now. So we'll probably be like two ten. Oh, it'll be like two twenty, man. It's go it's yeah. gonna be our longest episode. Like this By far. will be our longest episode and when I started this thing, when I started, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. And then as I kept going, I was like, I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. Legitimately, I was starting to feel like the racers. Like, oh, God, it's over. It's finally over. I think we're just going to need, like, a recap episode of this episode. <laughs> like, that'll just be the next between the line. It's just, okay, can we talk about all the goofy shit that happened there yeah no it's so it, it's insane i would not be remiss if we did that i would be okay if we did that well now that you've opened the floodgates to cars into this i assume you have i assume you have an i already have a couple for... subjects uh milling around nice so I'll, I'll think of a few and kind of work on them and fine-tune them beautiful but beautiful. now we're gonna be a, po- a car podcast for a hot minute <laughs> We are cut. This car was, cast. and this was our first adventure too. Like that's the other thing is I, I don't know if I can do a two hour long adventure one, but I, I, I I like doing that sort of format for that subject. Like I told, so. like I told you, man, I had finished this at like seven a.m. I was actually doing some brief additions before you came over, and then uh, brief updates, and then just it, the fact that I was legitimately doing. I did like 30 pages just last night. I was truly cramming like college way back in the day, man. Showing just how uh, how good of a researcher I was as a, as a college student. Yeah, you're one of those lunatics. I was I worked nights. Not. What can I say? Yeah. Eh, so you've got a... So. I've got a few ideas to run around with. Car related. Just... I guess this could be like another sort of supplemental, but not really a supplemental. Just like have a grand adventure sort of episode. You might have something in mind. I know you'll have something. Because I wanted this because this was, nobody had done something like this before back in 1908. And this was such a massive feat. It's also a stupid feat because it's like everything that went wrong did go wrong. Yeah. There's no. Literally the car frame broke. Mm-hmm. You can't fuck up any more than that. Nope, everything broke. I know, I've done it twice. <laughs> you can't screw the car up any further at this point, sir. But... Yeah, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah. But that is it, everybody. Thank you all for sticking around for this episode of Tall and Short. This was definitely not a short episode. This was very much... That episode took longer than the race. <laughs> it felt like it. <laughs> the, the, that, it. That felt longer than our than our monster session we did of pre-recording. Oh yeah, no kidding. Because that like, was just I one think I'd go. rather do that. Oh yeah, the 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 overall race. Ah, eh, screw it. I'm not going to get into it. No, we can do that on a supplemental. Yeah, we, yeah, we can yeah. do a follow up. Yeah, like I'm a not going to get into one. it. 
And you yep. can do it on your time. Yeah. Thank you all, everybody, for you know sticking around. This Going was, home. This was a lot. This was a lot. I really do appreciate y'all for sticking around. Thank you, Tony, for being a good sport, even if this was a lot of information to gather. Oh, God. Uh, but follow us on... There'll be some photos... That I'm gonna look to make sure they're not copywritten because there's some of these. Yeah, some we can't of those are public for, dom- or not public domain. We yet. can't use them. Others we can probably see if we can find some photos of the cars. Yeah, not I'll, really. The, I've got one. I've got a photo of George Schuster. Like, yeah, I'll that do one. the cars. I'll, I'll find the car photos. I'll get you a photo of, the, of Schuster. And follow us on Instagram where we're gonna post these photos. We're also on Facebook with Tall and Short Podcast. That's also our Instagram handle, Tall and Short Podcast. You. You can find us there, you know, interact with us. You can also email us at tallandshortpod at gmail.com. Comment what car you would want to take on this lunacy of an adventure. That'd be fantastic, absolutely. Even for, like, you know, if you need and find all the information, like, it's in the show notes of our YouTube videos, of wherever you get our podcasts, please. We would really appreciate it. Also, you know, leave a like, a review, Comment, thumbs up, three, five stars, whatever. Just it would have greatly appreciated everybody. About three or five stars, thirty-five stars. Exactly, thirty-five freaking stars, man. <sighs> but that's all it for. That's it for us, everybody. We're I'm gonna, gonna go, go. I'm gonna go get the jeep prepared. We're gonna go ahead and start on this right now. All right, on this journey. All right, I'll be the reporter. You'll be the driver. I trust you more behind the wheel than I trust me. I don't trust me. <laughs> You've seen my driving in GTA. You've seen... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> With that, everybody. Hong Kong, everybody, have a good one. Take it easy! Oh, God, I'm so tired. <laughs>